There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is now playing's Avengers Retrospective Series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Never heard of them. Part of the now playing Marvel Comic Movie Series. Well, I guess that's worth a look. Hosted by Arnie. I'm not what you think I am. Jacob. Big imagination, plays well with others. And Stuart. Heroes. Noble warrior heroes. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, we will be reviewing all the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies featuring the superheroes Iron Man. I'm just not the, the hero type, clearly. The Incredible Hulk. Hulk like raging fire. Thor. You call yourself Lord of Thunder. God of Thunder. Captain America. Just don't know when to give up, do we? I can do this all day. Ant-Man. The ultimate secret weapon. Guardians of the Galaxy. What a bunch of a-holes. Doctor Strange. Heroes like the Avengers protect the world from physical dangers. We sorcerers safeguard it against all mystical threats. Spider-Man. Are you an Avenger? Yeah, basically. Inhumans. What are we? What if I told you there's a place where people have powers like us? The city of Adelaide. Black Panther. You're telling me that the king of a third world country runs around in a bulletproof cat suit? Captain Marvel. Higher, further, faster, baby. That's right. <laughs> and the Avengers. I have an army. We have a Hulk. This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. And he is good. Listener discretion is advised. Gentlemen, you're up. Showtime, a-holes! Today we're discussing Captain Marvel, starring Brie Larson, Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Mendelsohn, Jimin Hansau, Lee Pace, Lashana Lynch, Demma Chan, Annette Benning, Clark Gregg, and Jude Law. Directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. This is Arn Rog, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart? And this is the host who's more threatening than a human, not quite as threatening as a cat, Jacob. All right. I've asked before. You guys have given qualified, hazy answers. It's time to know... Who is Captain Marvel? Isn't that the question of the movie? I mean, that's exactly this movie. Yes. Even they don't want to tell us where she comes from and what it's all about. But I assume with Marvel in her name, and I understand at some point it was a guy, that this might have been a flagship character starting with the first imprint of Marvel Comics. Yes? No, no, no. This is going all the way back to... Fawcett Comics, when Billy Batson found a wizard who gave him powers. Wrong Captain Marvel. No, but it goes back to that. That is where the roots of this name is, because Shazam, which we'll be talking about, went by Captain Marvel. Fawcett Comics, who owned that character, was sued by DC, saying that's a Superman ripoff. DC won, didn't do anything with the character, 
let the trademark on the name lapse. And Marvel swooped in in 1967 <laughs> and said, we're going to take that name and have Marvel, an alien spy on Earth. My knowledge of Captain Marvel comes from a graphic novel. I didn't even know Marvel, but I mentioned when we did some of the X Men reviews, Marvel was doing these graphic novels, which were more expensive. They looked painted, they weren't just your standard comic book style, and they had more serious stories. The God Love Man Kills X Men story we talked about in X Men 2 was one of those. The first graphic novel was The Death of Captain Marvel, where he dies of cancer. Yes. And I'm reading this and I'm like, well, I don't know who this Captain Marvel is, so I'm not really sad. What period of time was this? Late 70s. Okay. Yeah, in the comics, you had Marvel, who was a dude, but he befriends Carol Danvers, who is an Earth pilot. And yeah, eventually mantles are going to be passed on, powers are going to be passed on. It's all very complicated, convoluted, contradictory, depending on the continuity you're reading. But Carol Danvers, she becomes Ms. Marvel. And then just recently, like in the last decade, they've made her Captain Marvel. Really, she was an X-Men character, if you can believe it, because they didn't do much with Ms. Marvel. Chris Claremont took her and put her in the X-Men comics, and the reason Rogue is super strong and invulnerable and can fly is because she sapped Ms. Marvel's energy. And you can tell she's a 70s creation, right? Ms. Marvel. That was when it was a huge mm -hmm. feminist thing, is that I'm not Mrs. I'm not Miss. I am Ms. And that means I can be married, single, what have you. So Ms. Marvel was put in a coma by Rogue, who sapped so much of her power that Rogue could forever fly and be invulnerable. It wasn't a temporary thing like most of her powers. And that created a rivalry between the two. But yeah, around the time of we're going to change everything, Hulk is Asian, Cap is African-American, mm -hmm. Thor's a girl. Right. They took Ms. Marvel and her outfit was basically a one-piece bathing suit with a lightning bolt on it. And they're like, we're going to make her Captain Marvel now. We're going to put her in this outfit, blue and red, and we're going to completely change her. And the thing is, I was a fan of Ms. Marvel in the comics. I was actually reading the Ms. Marvel comics. She was an Avenger for a while. She had her own series for a while. I was excited for Captain Marvel. But man, those comics were just no fun. I like some fun in my comics. I think that's why I like Peter David, who brings humor. I like reading Spider-Man and some X-Men stuff. But here... She went into space and it just was so dry. I bought two issues and I'm like, I'm done reading this. And I never thought about Captain Marvel again until it came up on the MCU slate. Okay. And it sounds like from everything you guys are telling me that they've cherry picked certain story beats from all of the different Marvels to create the character we're here in the cinematic universe to talk about. Yeah, just like everything in the MCU, they've taken the highlights, streamlined it, made it simpler, gotten rid of the 40 years of contradictory history. And what's funny is they just, in the past year, completely retconned her origin. Initially, she got her powers when Marvel had an explosion on the base and she was washed over with the energy and it gave her powers very Hulk-like. But just in the past year, they changed it where all along her mother was a Kree and she never knew. So she actually is half Kree and that energy explosion only unleashed power she already had. And I think they'd leave that open here. I don't think they want to do that first off because that's too much Star-Lord being a half alien, but I didn't see her mother in this film. I see her dad, but not her mom. So they could be going there. Another thing is 
Goose the cat in the comic is Chewie the cat. Disney owns both properties now. I don't know why they couldn't go with Chewie, but... The directors talked about it. They said when Chewie was created, it was 2006. Star Wars was done. It was a fun callback. And now Star Wars is everywhere. It's too current. It's too obvious. So they went with Goose, whereas Chewie was Han's co-pilot. Top Gun, right? Exactly. They went with Maverick's co-pilot, Goose. All I can say is, as someone that had no identity to Captain Marvel. Like, I can usually picture any superhero you've talked about. I can think of how they would have looked in a comic book, even if I never read that comic book. I couldn't do that for Captain Marvel. The one thing that they were selling us early and often is that this is important for Marvel because it is the first time a female is leading a standalone film. I don't think that it's that rare to see kick-ass women in the Marvel Universe. I mean, Scarlett Johansson must be pretty damn pissed. She's really impressed me. Yeah, somehow we have not got a Black Widow movie. I don't understand that. Many, many times she is a highlight in these Avengers films. They have not given us that film. And of course, Scarlet Witch seems to have some of these powers that Captain Marvel is going to have. I don't think it's that rare, but it is the first time they've hinged their wagon on a woman totally carrying a film. You know, unfortunately, DC got there first and with a more iconic character, Wonder Woman. Now they're just trying to play catch up. Can we do what they did with what I would argue was their best movie? They're also trying to repeat Black Panther quite obviously. Black Panther came out last year. They put it out during Black History Month. It was very Afrocentric and became a huge phenomenon. Here, they were from the first trailer saying this is going to be for women what Black Panther was for black people and we're going to release it on International Women's Day. I know marketers and people were like, you know, we'd do a little bit better if we released it in February like Black Panther and gave it an extra month in between Captain Marvel and Infinity War instead of releasing two huge Marvel movies basically six weeks apart, but they wanted to be out on International Women's Day. They wanted a female director. They got co-directors, one of whom is a woman, husband-wife team, and their early trailers really, I thought, were invoking Hillary Clinton because there are these words that appear on screen and one of them was, this March, and then you see some scenes, everything begins. You see some scenes with her. And that's the whole, I'm with her, Hillary Clinton. When that trailer came out, we were only 18 months away from the election. It was still fresh in my mind. And then the with her would expand to say with a hero. But seeing with her, I'm like, you know, I wonder if that's exactly the tack to go with, given that the electoral college majority, if not the populist majority, went against the I'm with her message, but that's where they're going. I'll say this. I know there is a lot of stuff about Rotten Tomatoes, the very fragile males. Feelings were hurt because a girl was going to star in a Marvel film, and so they had to give it bad ratings. I don't know what the expectations were this film were box office wise just about every showing was sold out when I went to go buy tickets for this. I'm like, oh no, I'm going to have to go at like midnight to be able to get a seat. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Ghostbusters 2016 with the reaction and I think the online 
divisiveness around the Star Wars films and Ray has led into this and the fact that it's all coming from Disney. I think a lot of the Star Wars gate crowd have piled onto this. On top of Comics Gate, there's like so many gates going on for this film. Yeah, I've actually quit Twitter, so I'm not as plugged into that anymore because I just couldn't deal with that culture that thrives in Twitter and I've started blocking channels on YouTube where it's like, Brie Larson's gonna cost Disney a hundred billion dollars. I'm like, yeah, fake news. All right, shutting that down. Not that I don't see politicizing of this movie, but negative review bombing Rotten Tomatoes isn't going to accomplish anything. I just don't get why people are so threatened. It seems like we live in a world where if someone is highlighted, it comes at the detriment of somebody else. Like if we celebrate gay marriage, it invalidates straight marriage or a black person is only going to help a black person if you put them in power. They're not going to help white people. I just, there's this tribalism that comes from seeing difference. You know, we grew up in an era where that was celebrated and now I feel like everyone's going to their own corners and it's very dispiriting to see where we're at. We were taught growing up that you don't judge people by the way they look. And now that's all that anyone is doing right now. It's identity politics. You are what you look like and you represent that. And that to me is very limiting. I want Captain Marvel to be a cool superhero. They're telling me, first and foremost, it's important that she say something about women. So that is what I'm coming to this movie trying to look at and wondering if a movie like that can carry it. To me, it's different than Black Panther because Black Panther had a whole lot more to prove. There have been a lot of women that have starred in films that have been enormous successes. There was a big belief in Hollywood that if you cast a black lead, you will never gross as much as if you had cast a white one. And money is really what we're talking about here. It's the economy. It's not that people don't want black people to star in movies, it's that they want to get every last dime they can. And so Black Panther shattered that illusion. It's the most successful Marvel movie of all time, so we don't have to think in those ways. With women starring, again, Wonder Woman, huge hit, good film. If anything, it just means that Brie Larson has to go head-to-head with Gal Gadot. Now, I already weighed in on this. When we covered Wonder Woman, I said, Gal Gadot, not a great actress. Marvel has an ace and their sleeve because Brie Larson is. I don't know how many people know her. She hasn't done too many blockbuster films beyond Skull Island. I know her from Skull Island and Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Yeah, apparently she was in 21 Jump Street. I remember her in Scott Pilgrim. Don't remember her in 21 Jump Street. Don't remember her in Skull Island. I know her for Room. I'm like, oh, this is a serious actress because she was great in that. I mean, that's a very dark drama though. It's not a light comic book film. Yeah, I know her from Short Term 12 is where I discovered her, which is a little indie film. It's still my favorite performance of hers. And what struck me about casting her is how counterintuitive it is. She's not athletic. She's not aggressive. She's not particularly even feminist. She has an every woman quality and she seems complicated and internal. This is an actress that broods and thinks a lot. That is just not something short of Batman and the DC universe. We've not seen too much of that in Marvel. So I found it strange that they cast her. I know she's better than Gal Gadot, but will she be better at putting on spandex and deflecting bullets? They really sold her hard. She was announced in 2016 as Captain Marvel and... 
I found out from reading interviews with Kevin Feige and reading some making of of this, they actually intended Captain Marvel to first show up in 2015 as one of the end stingers of Age of Ultron. But they decided they were going to hold off on that, wait a little bit, announced her in 2016. So it took three years from casting till release of this movie. But man, in the behind the scenes featurettes and all the stuff they were releasing, I mean, there's a video and it is damn impressive of her pushing a 5,000 pound Jeep uphill. <laughs> what? Yeah. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Without the help of wires? Correct. She trained to the point that she was pushing her trainer's Jeep up a very slight, perhaps 1% incline, but that's impressive. Oh, very. And again, I had no doubt that she would commit. I mean, uh, I would expect she is in that school of actors that are actorly that, all right, if I'm going to play this role, I'm going to do everything to prepare. You know, of course, she's going to do a year-long regimen of be able to fit in the suit and, and of to project what we're talking about. But are you trying to put a square peg into a round hole? I mean, wouldn't they be better off getting an action heroine already? What are you getting by taking an indie drama actress, except if you're trying to make an indie drama in the disguise of a superhero movie. I also happen to note that's who they went to for the director's chair. Yeah, who are these directors? <laughs> I know one of their films very well. Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, about a decade ago, broke onto the scene with a little Sundance movie called Half Nelson, which in my mind cemented the idea that Ryan Gosling was one of the greatest actors of his generation. He is phenomenal in it as a burnt out teacher. It's really about the educational system. It's hard to separate the direction, the writing, and what Gosling was doing, but I thought they got to something very emotional and true with that movie. And if they could do that in a Marvel movie, it would be revolutionary. But there are other indies haven't been as successful. I haven't seen them, and critically, they weren't received as well. I'm not sure why you would be still thinking of them 14 years later. And while they are two of the three screenplay by credits for Captain Marvel, we're looking at a movie that has eight writing credits, most of whom, though it should be pointed out, are all women. Yeah, I do think that is important. I know I just said identity politics kind of makes me angry, but I also think if you're trying to tell the perspective of someone, you should probably let people that are in that perspective have a voice in it. Yeah, it's something we brought up with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and that worked very well for that film. Yeah, I mean, it's collaborative. Filmmaking doesn't have to be all one anything, but yes, inclusive. Listening to the people that you're telling stories about is essential. So everything that I'm getting, and I haven't, I admit, I haven't digested a lot about this movie coming out. My impression of what I was coming to when I went to the theater Thursday night was that this would be a movie that would look at what it is to be female and expand on how that can be super. And it was being told by people who have a sensitivity towards drama and no experience with blockbuster action. I was curious how they would do because, yes, the trailers told me, the early trailers, they actually changed later trailers to make it just feel like more of a Marvel movie. If you look at some of the TV ads, it's hysterical that they, like, show Iron Man, Thor, Captain America, Captain Marvel, and they're saying you need to see this because it's the next in the chain of Marvel movies. It's not even selling this movie for what it is, really trying to reach past that. But, yes, 
I came in wondering how the identity politics would inform the movie and what the movie would be beyond that. But I knew that was going to be there because that was a big selling point. And again, coming out on International Women's Day. But I think it worked. I went to the fan screening on Thursday night, got my little coin, got to see the movie an hour earlier or otherwise known as the same time as people on the East Coast. But it was primarily a 20 to 40-something audience that decided to pay exorbitant prices for a non-IMAX showing of the film and just to get this little coin. But there did seem to be clusters of women, which I hadn't necessarily noticed as many of in previous ones. Groups of women coming together without any males sitting with them. I went twice. I went Thursday night and had an experience in Real D. I did go again to IMAX. Ran into you, Arnie, actually. Yeah, that was my second showing. (laughs) Coming in line, and this is the second superhero movie where we sat in the same row without even knowing the other person was going, but Mm -hmm. with reserved seats. But yes, I wanted to see the IMAX presentation. I knew some of this was filmed in IMAX, framed for IMAX, and I didn't feel like the theater I went to in St. Louis for the fan event had the greatest sound in the world. So I wanted to hear it again and honestly I found the movie confusing on first blush just to preview my hand I went in not knowing what to expect and came out with a hell of a lot of questions specifically about the first act I'm like okay now that I know the resolution and I know the answers to the questions let me go back to see where the questions were asked and see which ones get answered I didn't notice the big contingencies of, like, girls' night going out. Just a lot of families. Seemed like your typical Marvel crowd. A lot of families. A lot of 20-somethings going together. It seems like that Marvel marketing machine is just continuing to work. Bringing out the crowds. People are really going to see this movie. It's estimated at $150 million opening. Huge. It's expected to gross more this weekend than the top-grossing films of all the weekends so far this year combined. Well, that may be a sad state of the box office as well. That's That may not be the might of Captain Marvel so much as the weakness of our movie-going experience. But be that as it may, Arnie, you saw it twice. Go ahead, give him the plot. We'll get into this Marvel movie. All righty then. Wow, we're really going 90s retro. <laughs> oh no, how many pop cultural references are you going to throw in? It's like, where's Waldo? How many can you count? Back in the day, specifically in 1989, an experimental U.S. Air Force craft crashed. Its engineer, Dr. Wendy Lawson, played by Annette Bening, and its pilot, Carol Danvers, played by Brie Larson, were both assumed killed. Our movie picks up in 1995. In the events of the crash, Carol lost all her memory. She was taken to the Cree homeworld of Hala by Cree soldier Jan Rog, played by Jude Law. I so wanted Mrs. Elliot to do the music on this. (laughs) Hala! Oh, see, I was waiting for I Ain't No Holla Back Girl. Well, she's in here, too. Yeah, but it came a few years later. Yeah, I know. We'll talk about it. Despite having no memory, she was trained as a Cree soldier, and the only name they know for her is Veers. Although I think it would technically be Vers, because there's only one E. General Veers in Star Wars has two E's. And soldiers were needed as Cree were in a never-ending war with the shape-shifting Skrulls. So Jan Rog, under the direction of the Kree leader, an artificial intelligence named the Supreme Intelligence, has been training her to be a warrior. They also train her to talk to the hand, as in control her ability to shoot photon blasts from her hands. At the start of the film, Veers goes on her first mission with Jan Rog and his team to rescue an exposed Kree spy. And the mission is a huge success. Not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I never talked like this even in the 90s. I'm not sure you did either. I'm waiting for the swing <laughs> reference. 
The scrolls were already there and they capture Veers and probe her memory, and she is bugging as it reveals things she didn't even remember, such as she was a U.S. Air Force pilot on Project Pegasus working for Dr. Lawson. Veers escapes the ship and crash lands at a Los Angeles blockbuster video store. This gets the attention of the secret agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and so Nick Fury, played by a de-aged Samuel L. Jackson, and rookie Phil Coulson, played by a de-aged Clark Gregg, but Veers is also chased by a group of Skrull shapeshifters led by Talos, played by Ben Mendelsohn. When Fury kills a Skrull pretending to be Coulson, he totally starts to give props to Veers' tall tale. He goes with her to try to find Dr. Lawson at the secret Project Pegasus base, but they find Lawson is dead and that Veers was a pilot named Carol Danvers. Both S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Air Force are trying to capture or kill both Veers and Fury. Oh, snap! They steal a sweet Air Force quad jet and go to visit the other pilot on Project Pegasus, Maria Rambo, played by Lashana Lynch. At Rambo's house, the group is found by Talos, who reveals the big twists of the film. The Skrulls are not an aggressive terrorist species. They're a race on the verge of extinction, devastated because they would not accept Kree overlord rule. And Dr. Lawson was a Kree hiding out on Earth to try to develop a faster-than-light engine. She knew the Kree were warmongers, so Lawson, real Kree name Marvell, was doing this in secret with the goal to help the remaining Skrulls relocate to a planet where the Kree can't find them. The Kree found out and were the ones who killed Lawson, to protect Lawson's work, Danvers shot and blew up the experimental engine, which washed Danvers in energy that her body absorbed, making her a living weapon. Jan Rog took Danvers back to the Kree. Also, Marvell had a partner, a flurkin named Goose. I think I have a flurkin. It's my IKEA Entertainment Center. <laughs> a flurkin in this movie is an alien that looks just like an Earth cat. Fury is taken with the cat, but Goose scratches Fury's face, causing him to lose an eye. Carol Danvers is won over by Talos' plea, so she decides to pick up where Marvell stopped, fighting the Kree to help the Skrulls escape. They go to Marvell's lab in orbit over Earth to find Skrull refugees that Marvell had been hiding, and Jan Rog and his team come to get Marvell's power source, the Tesseract. It was on Marvell's lab. Danvers is caught by Jan Rog, but will that stop her? As if. Danvers removes the circuit on her neck that the Kree used to limit her powers, and she is unleashed. Booyah! And she totally opens up a can of whoop-ass, single-handedly defeating all of the Kree, even sending Kree bombers led by Ronan, played by Lee Pace, into retreat. She then promises to help the Skrulls find a new homeworld, and she will end the Skrull-Kree war. But before leaving for space, she gives Fury a modified pager where he can contact her in case of emergencies. And in a mid credit scene, we see Captain America, Black Widow, Bruce Banner, and Rhodey with that pager, and Carol, Captain Marvel Danvers, arrives on Earth answering the page as the rest of the credits roll. Word. Wow. Woo, 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 woo. <laughs> gotta give it up for you on that one. Well, the movie starts by giving it up and pouring out a little for its homie Stan Lee, the Marvel logo, where we usually see Captain America and Iron Man and reminding us of the heroes we love, reminding us of the co-creator of the heroes we love, all Stan in this opening logo, and then ending with the words, thank you, Stan. Yeah, this is the first one since he died November 12th, if you're not counting Spider-Verse, like the first MCU to be able to acknowledge the passing. And this woman sitting next to me, I know he was 
only a couple times, but every time we see his face, oh, oh, that was my whole audience at the fan screening. Yeah, the whole audience. Look, I'm just going to recuse myself. I don't like this fetishization of Stanley that the MCU has brought about with movie theater audiences. But yes, the audience went crazy for it. I thought it was a nice tribute and he did a lot, not just for the creation of these characters, but for them staying in pop culture. He was Marvel's best publicist ever, even after he retired. This feels fitting. He was the one who went out to Hollywood trying to sell Marvel characters. And yeah, the audience got a big awe. I had a really... I dare say cringe-inducing audience at the fan screening, and I'll talk about it as we go through, but they were very vocal in ways that I'm like, really? As we get into this, yes, we meet Veers, and this is the first name that we're going to have of several for Brie Larson's character. She is awakening from a dissociative fugue in which we see scenes we're going to see reinterpreted later. We know this can't be total reality when she's standing among this flaming wreckage bleeding blue from her nose because she's in her PJs. That's the one tip that tells us that can't be how it exactly happened. Yeah, yet what we see is... Annette Benning, we don't know who she is, mm-hmm. standing over Veers, shooting at somebody coming out of the smoke, but they kind of tease it. Who is it? It's the shape. And then when it finally shows up, a scroll, which maybe they were teasing it because Marvel didn't have the rights to scrolls. This was Fantastic Four, right? That's Fox. Uh huh. Fox had to allow them to mm. use the scrolls. This was even before the Disney buyout. And in fact, people thinking you're going to see X Men in Avengers. They've come out by law. They cannot change anything Fox does, Disney can't, until the deal is final. So this was a trade that they did back when they got Ego from Fox for Guardians of the Galaxies 2. They also got permission long before the buyout to use the scrolls, And so maybe that was why it was there. But I'm going to say I know from watching the trailers and watching the behind the scenes, stuff was cut out of this film. Because at no point later on do we see Annette Benning standing and shooting at somebody. No, no, she is actually, it was her standing. And this movie's, one of its big motifs is when you fall down, getting up. And she saw herself in the beginning as someone on the ground when she should see herself as someone standing strong and pointing a gun. Yeah, when we see the events of what actually happens, she is the one standing up. Yeah, but she never actually shoots the scroll. We see the scroll get shot, too. Well, because there's no scroll there in reality. Yeah, and we don't know what the Kree did. It's later alluded to that she was found around this crash, and she had a blood transfusion with the Kree. They've been working on her head. They put a plug on her neck. There was a scene in the trailer showing the blood transfusion. So they filmed it. This film's over two hours long. I could go without the blood transfusion. I got it. Thanks, Jude Law. You dropped a line in there. The editing in this movie is very condensed to the point that, yes, they just kind of skip over a lot of things that I just wanted to linger. Just help me just a little bit to understand what you're saying. Many times, because they want to keep this movie breezy, and it is, it is barely over two hours, and that is a compliment. But in doing so, it has made the fine details hard to decipher. I feel like her trying to look back at the movie after one view and going, okay, how did that happen and why? Exactly. That's why I went back the second time is because a lot of this first act, a lot of this stuff with the Kree, I did not understand. I still don't understand why you find a human who just blew something up and be like, let's train her. 
Well, I think they're going to want to try to extract the power from her. They, again, they never say that, but that's my feeling. The vibe I got, especially with this first act, because this is when you get all this crazy editing, jumping all around the timeline. I felt like Marvel's like, we can't just do an origin story. So you'll get little snippets, but you got to piece it together, like her on a go-kart and then her training with the military. But I think they are afraid, and they should be, because this is 21 in the MCU. We're sick of origin films, and so they're trying to get their way around that. And yet we see the value of doing it the old-fashioned way by not giving us a step-by-step reveal of who this character is I'm never going to connect very deeply with Brie Larson. She is just never going to mean that much to me. She remains an enigma. Even at the end, she's going to disappear for 24 years. I'm like, I have no idea who she's going to be when we see her again in Endgame. I don't know who she is at the beginning or at the end. Agreed. I feel that she is a completely underdeveloped character in her own movie, which is a shame. I know that, yes, we're going to see her fall down a lot. It was in the trailer. They made an entire montage of her falling down. And then in the trailer, they made a montage of her standing up. So spoiler alert, they're in the trailer. They're going to see her stand up and turn into Captain Marvel. Yeah, that ends up being the literal resolution of the film. <laughs> yeah, but... Who is she? What is her arc? Does she not want to stand up at the beginning? When she has this dream, she can't sleep. So she goes to spar with Jude Law. He punches her in the face and she falls down. She gets right back up. At the end of the movie, she's going to get right back up. I don't know her arc after two viewings of this movie. Yeah, Jude Law is interesting to me because he is doing what every man has done to her. We will see in flashbacks when she falls off the ropes during basic training, somebody says, you're never going to be a fighter pilot. And then later we see some guy at a bar saying, that's why it's called the cockpit. We see the aggression, but Jude Law to me in the beginning, the reason why I don't guess the twist is because he says things that Yoda would have said to Luke. Like, don't get angry. Angry is the enemy. I don't realize that's gaslighting. I don't realize that's a man trying to say, I don't want you to be as powerful as me. He literally says, don't use your emotion, which is like, isn't that a thing to do? Like, oh, women, they're so emotional. I mean, I definitely feel like that is a common attack on women is that if they lose their temper, that is seen as being womanly. He does everything but tell her to smile. And then when she does smile, he punches her in the face for it. But I'm confused because I'm like, she can shoot beams out of her hands. Why wouldn't you want her to use that as a warrior? So that is, for me, the disconnect. I go, oh, okay, they're trying to do some commentary on men and women and emotionality. But she's also super powerful. So why wouldn't you want to use that? So I don't quite get where Yon Rog is coming from. And I'm so confused because I'm like, can Yon Rog shoot? things out of his fists. I mean, this seems like a big deal that she has this little implant on her neck and can shoot things out of her fists. And they say they gave it to her. Wouldn't you give that to everyone? Yeah, help me track this because I, in watching these movies, have not been tracking a Kree scroll conflict. I don't remember the Kree that well. They're in Guardians, right? Are yes. we in the city that Glenn Close runs? No, 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 no. That was Xandar. Okay. And yes, I thought this was a bold move because the Kree were the bad guys in Guardians of the Galaxy. Ronan the Accuser was Kree. Oh. A Kree zealot who didn't like the peace treaty they made with Xandar. And so he went rogue and decided to kill all the Xandarians. Now, they never mentioned the Skrulls because they didn't have the license to. But I thought, this is interesting because we saw the Kree as evil warmongers. And then... If you want to take Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. into account, okay. because they say it's all connected. More than I want to take Inhumans into account. Well, that's <laughs> exactly where I'm going. According to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the Kree 
came to Earth during the time of primitive man and gave blood transfusions creating inhumans on Earth. And thus, in modern times, there were descendants of inhumans that, when exposed to Terrigen Mist, became super-powered. Now, why are you reminding us of that movie? It all matters, right? That's the tagline. It's all connected. And Cree technology, it is said, is what's used to bring Coulson back to life after he's killed in Avengers. And here we have Coulson, we have Kree. I don't think it fits. I don't think the Kree look the same, even though they're blue. Well, none of the Kree look the same. Jude Law's white. We got the black guy that was with Ronan in Guardians of the Galaxy. Then we got blue people. I don't even understand what the Kree are. Then you can't help me. That was my (laughs) next question was... I didn't know why Jude Law, who they rarely mention his name, but I afterwards looked it up. Jan Rog sounds a lot like Jan Du, and Michael Rooker had a lot of prosthetic going on. Is it because they want a hunky Jude Law and they don't want him to look too exoticized by prosthetics? Why doesn't he look like what I presume if his species Yandu? Oh, it gets confusing. Yandu is a Centaurian, not a Cree, but he said he was a slave for the Cree, but he's blue skinned and most of the Cree are blue skinned. I think when it comes to the Cree, you know, just how we have people of different colors. The Cree, they have a lot of colors too, but the predominant one is blue. And from the comics, my memory is blue is the iconic color I associate with Cree. One thing I noticed, one of the reasons why you might think these are good people is that they just have such a humanism. For the good of all Cree is like a line they use, or prepared to join the collective. Like, they're inclusive. And so to me, because that feels a lot like, you know, America, that seemed like something that they were celebrating. I guess what we're going to find out by the twist in the middle is that this is a critique on America policy. Do you think? <laughs> Quite. We will definitely talk about that. But yes, I was confused as to why she thinks she's a Cree. I was also confused who Jude Law was because they don't say his name. I thought he was going to be revealed to be Marvell. I thought that was going to be the twist. And I think there were some rumors I read online about that because they weren't saying who he was playing. They were leading us down a path since Marvel in the comics was a man that this could be Marvel. We would never suspect Annette Benning, you know. I never would have thought she was Marvel. They like, got me there. And this whole crew that comes together for this early mission. They're as important as Thanos minions in that (laughs) Infinity War film. I don't know. One's got some horns or something. One uses his mind. They're not important. They're going on a mission at the directive of the Supreme Intelligence. The Kree aren't ruled by Kree even. They're ruled by the Matrix. And you have to like jack into the Matrix with black ooze to see the supreme intelligence who is the person you most admire so i know all our listeners see me when they talk to supreme intelligence but (laughs) veer sees annette benning yeah god appears to you in a way that you can understand if we're to think of supreme intelligence in that way and what is tricky for veers is if you're going to appear to me as annette benning that implies i have some feeling about this person i don't remember Annette Benning, except when I dream, occasionally I'm standing on an airfield and I see her in a flight suit. And it will be a big tease for half of this movie as to who Annette Benning is in relationship to Veers. This mission that the Supreme Intelligence sends her on, on two viewings, 
I'm guessing this is Veer's first mission after six years of training. I wanted that underlined. It is. I had no idea. I thought she'd been on missions. They really needed to have this be a ceremony in which she graduated. Like, rather than just wake him up for, you know, some sparring in the middle of the night, you are finally done with your Cree programming. If they had done something like that, I think it would have made it more understandable why she was excited to be going on what otherwise seems like a pretty not important mission. All right, one guy's in trouble on a planet somewhere. All right, stakes are low. (laughs) Yes. And... We're told she was sent to the Supreme Intelligence to get in trouble. Like, if you can't control your emotion, you're going to have to go see the Supreme Intelligence. Like, being sent to the principal's office, and she blasts Jude Law with a photon punch, and so she goes to see the Supreme Intelligence, and the Supreme Intelligence is also saying, keep your emotions under control. What has been given can be taken away, and we see the little insect-like device on the back of her ear that we think is giving her power. Yeah, which she knows about. I'm wondering the whole time, why did she just rip that off? Like, they're going to use that to track her or something, to turn off her powers. Like, that's the first thing you do. All right, so you're on to the movie Surprise, Jacob, because, again, if you just take this out of the context of men talking to women, where, yes, okay, I can understand that, I would say that many of these life lessons are things that are good. Yes, you shouldn't go around angry and punching people all the time. You should learn to moderate and control and not fight in anger. That's the whole point of, like, karate, right? A Bruce Lee. Yeah, it's for defensive uses. In other contexts, the trope is completely understandable, and it to me, it makes me feel like I know what movie I'm in. So it's a nice surprise when I realize it makes it feel feminist, when I realized that all of this stuff is gaslighting and mansplaining and that this woman should not be afraid of her full potential. And I'm coming down the middle. I didn't realize exactly what was going on because to me, scrolls are bad guys. We had Secret Invasion a little over a decade ago. Oh, this is some revisionist history when we get into the scrolls. Yeah, to me, scrolls are always evil. When is the shapeshifter ever a good person? You know, maybe Odo in Deep Space Nine, but really, shapeshifters are always bad because they're insidious, they can cloak, that you can never see who they are, so that just leads in fiction to deception. I felt that the Kree would be the good guys, which is why I was like, wow, that's a change from Guardians, and yet I also saw the mansplaining. I came in looking for the feminist agenda, and if you're looking for it, you don't have to look hard, because when he says, control your emotion, I'm right with you. I'm like, well, yeah, I see how that's, you know, telling women you're emotional, but yeah, I also think if you have a gun, you should know how to use it. You shouldn't just be wildly shooting off. So I kind of torn on that message there. And I think the filmmakers, and hoping not to give too much away, just keep cutting. And so we have storytelling that is so disjointed and goes into flashbacks and memories at certain points that it really is hard to be in the moment and to think these things through. I guess it's their strategy. You won't figure it out if we keep throwing new things at you. It makes the movie fast-paced, but it also makes it hard for me to get a handle on who I'm looking at. I'm having a hard time getting a hold on this because Veers is so damn pithy. She's on this mission and she's telling Korith he's ugly. And then we've got this other guy, objectively, you're quite handsome. And so I'm like, wait, they're ribbing each other? Does she have a relationship with these people? I thought this was her first mission. This whole movie brings humor in places where... It actually sets me off kilter. I know the Marvel movies are known for being funny, and there's definitely some humor here that I felt fit, but a lot of times she'll make these lines that I'm like, I don't know who she is. 
that's because Brie Larson isn't funny. You wouldn't cast her in a broad comedy. She hasn't demonstrated those chops. And so I feel like probably they had cuts of the movie and said, we got to help her out. She's coming off as too aloof. And we need for people to care. And what's the easiest way to make anybody care about a character if they make them laugh? So, yes, there's awkwardly inserted humor coming from her when it doesn't feel like that's who she really is. Yeah, nothing against Brie Larson's acting abilities. I just don't know if she's right for this character because you're right. Every time she has to make a joke, I'm just rolling my eyes. I'm like, ooh, that's the best take they could get from her (laughs) on that one. I don't think she's that engaging. And in a movie like Room, yes, she's great. She could pull that off. In these Marvel films, especially, I'm thinking a lot about Guardians at the beginning of this film. I mean, this really ties into Guardians with Ronan, the accuser and all that, and just this group in space going around fighting battles. Yeah, she doesn't work for me. I never get into her character because, again, Larson could do great things in another type of film. This isn't her film. I'm going to put it on the writing. I like Brie Larson in this film. I'll say that. I don't know that she's ever comfortable in it. The other problem I have with her in this role is she's constantly, every time she's on scene, and if she's wearing the Kree outfit, because she's wearing this green battle suit that everybody's wearing to go into battle, that later on she's going to repaint to the gold, red, and blue, but she's posing as if somebody said, here's your action figure, stand like that. Her hands are always in fists. Her elbows are locked. Her arms are jutting out from her sides. She's constantly posturing. She feels unnatural in the uniform. Like, even though she had three years between the time she was cast in this movie, she never got comfortable that she is a superhero. That said, I love the Mohawk suit. Is that from the comic book? Because that's a good look. Yeah, when she became Captain Marvel, she didn't quite have a mohawk, but yeah, it had like a faux hawk going on. It only comes out when she can't breathe oxygen, they underwater or in space. Yeah, it's weird. That means there's some kind of opening in that helmet, which I don't know if you want that when you're in space, but I'll go with it, whatever. It's a cool look. I like the mohawk look. You know, there are these different looks for her. They paid homage to all of those. I was shocked we never got a Ms. Marvel homage. I was waiting for that, someone to pull out like a black bathing suit and a sash. I thought for sure when they were trying out all the different outfits later on, we'd see Ms. Marvel or Binary. I mean, she's gone by a lot of different names and had a lot of different outfits. But this mission, I'm confused by it after two viewings. They're going to rescue a Kree spy in this planet that have a bunch of local refugees that are revealed to be Skrulls, all of whom are carrying weapons and ready to attack should they be found out. The Skrulls, led by Talos, want specifically Veers because Veers has the energy signature that they had from the engine and they know she has the knowledge of where all the refugee scrolls are that worked with Marvel. Is that right? No, no. She knows something about a faster than light engine and they want that technology. How do they know she knows? They don't know who she is when they get her. This sting was not to get her. I thought it was after no. two viewings. No, I'm pretty sure this is all to get her. No. Then why do they go into her memories and know specifically her? She's the one who has this info. This is to get her. I agree that it is muddy. But what is said to her later is the reason why they even restrained her and did what they did was they didn't know that she was someone that had... I don't know if they knew that she had the heat signature. They didn't... hmm, You're right. It's not really clear. (laughs) They said something about her having an energy signature. Yes, but I thought they figured that out when they were going through her mind. It feels like this was a setup, though, because the spy was really a scroll, so they were trying to lure some Kree there. (laughs) 
if they weren't trying to lure her specifically, then they were luring people to their death. And that is contradictory to the image they want to portray of Skrulls later, who, upon second viewing, I realized no Skrull is killing in this scene. It's all the Kree killing Skrull, but you don't see, maybe in self-defense they fight back, but you don't see aggressive Skrull behavior. When Minerva starts shooting, they all scroll out, they transform, and they all have these, like, taser sticks, and they start hitting the Kree with taser sticks, but of this whole crew that came, every single person shows up later. So the scroll were ineffective, but to me, this does play like a trap. And here we're rooting for an extraction team. They're going to save one of their own and every single person around them is the enemy in disguise. So to me, this looks like scroll aggression. Later on, Talos is going to say, I'm dirty with this war, too. I think this is some of the dirty war. There's no good side in a war. I think the best way I can read this movie is to understand that both sides have done terrible things. There is no innocent. There's nobody that's just a refugee quivering alone on a planet waiting to be rescued and taken somewhere. They've all done dirty, underhanded things. They called the Skrulls terrorists. That tells me about the Afghanistan's putting bombs on vehicles like i mean you're i mean let's not talk about middle east politics because that's a but i think this movie is talking about specifically uh, middle east politics no no ultimately this is about caravans from guatemala coming to the u.s it's about the way that america perceives outsiders is the way to really look at it but when you deal with a technologically superior culture which they specifically call the kree fighting a technologically inferior culture and the inferior culture fights back in ways that are called terrorists there's only one way I can see that. My wife would agree with you. She's like, oh, this was all about Palestinians and Israel. I'm like, no, they make it very clear once we get to Earth what this movie is going to be about. Yeah, I mean, Palestine, you mentioned Afghanistan already. What about Syria? These are all, in my mind, very separate issues. Not to mention, yeah, the South American caravans. I just... We can just simplify it as saying that in this moment, we have the perspective of the dominant culture which is no better or worse than the other culture. But the dominant perspective is that if they won't assimilate, they are terrorists and must be wiped out. But we don't even know that at this point. Veers is our point of view. What she is told is the Skrulls are the aggressors. The Skrulls are infiltrating planets and destroying them using their shape-shifting. And so they think the Kree are on the defense. Right. I don't know who else believes that. Does everybody else on this crew know their aggressors except Veers? Or is this what they're telling the whole populace, yet we know Jan Rog knows? Yeah, well, the one bit of information I can cite on that is when they're taking the train to go see the Supreme Intelligence, the voice of propaganda, I don't know where it's coming from, is just announcing to the entire city that it's been 128 days since the last Skrull attack. I believe the message to the common Cree is that they are the ones that are being persecuted. And whether that is true or not, this movie cannot have the perspective to fully illuminate. But it is blown out of proportion how much Skrull is to blame for all the bloodshed. But here, whether it's planned or luck, they capture Veers and take her to their what's called... I don't think it's said in the movie, but it's in the making of the mind frack machine. Oh, fracking. I mean, let's throw that in there, too. Okay. 
And this is where we really get a lot of jumping around, where they're going to rewind and fast forward her life. And every memory she has is of a man telling her she can't do it. She's in a go-kart as a little girl. You need to go slow. She's swinging for ropes. You're not strong enough. That guy, you know why they call it a cockpit. It's not very helpful that she has no model of a man trying to help. I do think the way that to help this world is to think that because someone is different from you doesn't mean that they can't help you. And here, women are good and sing karaoke and all men want to put you down. And that is a very limited message to send. I would believe it in the Air Force. In many cultures. I'm right. not saying it doesn't happen. It makes me mad. There's no representation of a positive male figure. That's what I'm saying. I agree. But in the Air Force, they even mentioned this because I was going to look it up. Women weren't allowed to fly combat in the 90s. You could be pilots, but you couldn't do combat missions. They can now? Yes. Oh, I didn't even know that. I could see that where a woman trying to get into a male-dominated military field, machismo everywhere. Yes. But on the go-kart thing, and what's she doing playing co-ed softball where the little boy's trying to throw a baseball at her head? This is where to be able to connect to this character, it would have been helpful to have some character. Like, right. why is she going into these male-dominated roles? Not saying that she shouldn't yes. or that she can't, but why? What would attract her to go into the Air Force where she can't even fly a combat mission? There's something about her psyche, her character, that is pushing her to do that. I would love to know what it is. It would help me know what this character is about. The only thing I can say is we do have one scene, the only kind example of a male role model is her older brother after getting her in trouble with the go-karts points to the stars and when they're stargazing and she is always looking up so it becomes more metaphorical than character but the idea is she really wants to explore the cosmos and the air and this is the only way at that point in time 1980s that a woman could do that and was that her brother i guess was it a friend this movie has cast so many ages of Carol Danvers just so we can see the character fall off a bike. And is the guy with the mustache her father? Yes. I think so. But it is so unexplored as to actually confuse the issue of who she is instead of helping me understand who she is. So let's be empathetic for the filmmakers. They have a choice here. This is the crossroads. They can either tell an origin story like we've seen nine million times and everyone complain, this is boring, all the same beats, or they could set it like this and you only see it as a collage and you don't connect. No, I think that's a straw man. You could still create character. Again, going back to Star-Lord, because that's kind of my reference for this film, is, yeah, we see a little moment of him not being able to handle his mother dying of cancer, and that's going to have a big impact on him throughout the rest of that first film. Like, that is kind of his motivation, is running from that and having to finally confront death and family and all that. It doesn't take a whole lot of time. You don't have to do it like a traditional origin story. It could be written better. What you're talking about is what I would call the rosebud phenomenon. If you can find one moment from someone's life and say, this is their whole trick, then if they had done that, it would have been good shorthand. But it still would have been shorthand. We might have liked her more. We might have understood her better, but it still would have been shorthand. If we had followed her on the journey, why she enlisted and all of that, I do think we would like Brie Larson more than I do watching the montage. Agreed. I just feel this movie keeps me emotionally distant from her, and I see things happen, but I'm not given a why, and other than the fact that she 
on the poster, never said in the movie, is named Captain Marvel, and I like Marvel movies. I don't know why I'm rooting for her. I don't know why she does half the things she does in this movie. I can tell you why the movie is going to work for audiences, though. What we're talking about is the first 26 minutes to get us to what they really want to do. Yes, she bursts out of her restraints and there's lots of fighting and she finally breaks off her fists and she ends up blowing a hole in the spaceship and they all have to evacuate. Were they right above Earth? Because they keep saying, where's this C-53 planet? And then she falls out of the ship and Earth's right there. I, were they flying this whole time? They were, when they were picking her mind, if you listen to the voices over the montage, they had figured out their Cree operative friend that had all of the refugees they're trying to find was on Earth. They knew that, and all they were really trying to focus at that point were the coordinates to the lab. It just seems like they got there very fast for people that want faster-than-light technology. <laughs> yeah, given that they were in the exact same spot as the Kree, and the Kree are like, we're 22 hours from a jump point, which does, you know, we talked about jump points in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. It does have the continuity that they don't have faster than light travel. They have jump points. And so, yeah, the Kree got there really fast with her. I caught it on the second viewing. But yeah, I enjoy the action where she's beating everybody up. She's like, does anyone know how to take these things off my hands? No. And then she just starts pounding people. Oh, see, I think a lot of these fight scenes suffer. Again, maybe because these are indie directors, I just think the editing's poor. They're not very dynamic fight scenes. I agree, but I like Brie in them. She looks like she's having fun. When the scroll roars at her as she roars back is like the one true moment of what the frack humor. Yeah, I agree. This fight is her best moment. <laughs> And she's running around barefoot, which I didn't even realize until she has to like open a door and because her hands are bound, she uses her foot and it's bare. So she has to run back to get her boots and the, you know why they call it a cockpit guy is on the screen. The scrolls are just replaying it because I guess they found it funny and she blasts the screen and gets out of there. And all the while, Talos is trying to talk to her. He's trying to have a conversation, but understandably, she's just interested in escape. Right. And this is all so that they can get to a place that everyone will finally connect with the movie. Blockbuster. Yes. The 90s. It kills me that people who now vote weren't alive in the 90s. And right. this movie to them would be like Back to the Future for me when they go back to the late 50s. And I'm like, wow, that's so long ago. But I wanted to know my audience, fan event. Did they not watch the trailers that were shown so often? Because they see Blockbuster Video, uproarious laughter. I'm like, laughter? Yeah. You know, it can be fun to have this, but it also can be Thor. And Thor remains one of my least favorite movies. All of that fish out of water comedy where like we're not doing a plot. We're just going around to pet stores and saying, get me my horse. You got to be sparing with it. You got to use it in the right way. You got to be smart or it can become incredibly toxic. To be fair, she's not a fish out of water in time. She didn't time travel to the 90s. This is when we find out everything that's been happening is in what we call the 90s. The fish out of water is that she's an alien on Earth. I did catch a film flub, though. When we have the establishing shot of Blockbuster, 
there's a true lie standee in the window facing outward. And yet when she wakes up in the blockbuster, she does a photon blast and blows Arnold's head off and Standy's facing inside the store. I mean, maybe it's facing both ways. I mean, only you would get worked up over such a thing. I was trying to like put all the music together and go, is this time accurate? Was this song out at this time? I did. They're they're really pushing it with just a girl. Yeah. Oh yeah, they push it with Babe. Babe would have been in movie theaters when that was up, but. Was Babe in the video store? Yeah. Okay, I tried to write down all the movies. I noticed a lot of Disney. Noticed Hook. Yes, I saw Hook. <laughs> Junior. There's a lot of Arnold. Last action hero. That's what I wanted to ask. Does she blast Arnold because he was a failed California governor with sexual allegations against him? Or is she dethroning an action hero of that time? It's not because he's the governor, because they wanted it to actually be Jim Carrey's The Mask, because it would look like a scrawl with the green face. And that movie deserves to be blown up. They couldn't get the licensing rights, so they got True Lies. Ha ha. Okay, so that's no slam against Arnold, because later we meet a Rambo, and I'm like... Yes, it's so weird. Are they intentionally going through 80s male archetypes and deconstructing them, or am I just reading that because I've been told this is a women's movie? I think you're reading that. I also saw her blowing Arnold away, and I thought maybe she's going, I'm the action hero of the 90s. Rambo is a coincidence. That's actually a character from the comics, and I always thought it was pronounced Rambau because it's spelled B-E-A-U. I never realized it was pronounced like John Rambo until this movie, but that happens to be a coincidence. Here's the thing. Okay, she lands in a blockbuster. Ha ha. She's going to pick up the right stuff and look at it. Okay, but then where did I go for communication? I'm like, she's going to go to Radio Shack. Security guard over there. Radio Shack. You, you are just like the guy next to me because he was just saying everything that was going to happen before it happened because they showed the Radio Shack in the background. And so where could I get communication equipment? This guy leads over to his friend and stage whispers, Radio Shack. Yeah. And then she gets a Game Boy, though. You don't buy Game Boys at Radio Shack. All you bought at Radio Shack were circuits and tandy. Honey, stop. We can't go to that minutia. <laughs> My problem is when she's standing by that payphone and there are just all these bills posted for bands and it's just every 90s band advertised. I'm like, it's a little too much. When I think about the 90s, you know, there's a movie in our underrated movies book, Singles. And when I watch that, I'm like, oh, this is great because it feels like the 90s because it was filmed then, but there's no sense of irony or satire. Just filming it as it was. And it feels very authentic. This is very, here's the Wikipedia page about the 90s. It's staged. I, I mean, the fact that there's a Rock the Vote, which was a campaign on MTV. I remember it. Is also sending a message of why did we end up with the president we did. The fact that one of the 90s bands they have up there is Bush. Yes, I do think that's a feminist comment. PJ Harvey being one of them. I mean, I feel there is commentary going on in the background. They are selecting the 90s details that elucidate a point they have about women empowerment, including the soundtrack. That security guard is listening to Salt and Peppa, and almost every song that we're going to hear was pretty much coming out around 1995, sung by women, usually in a very empowering way. I mean, it was the era of the Riot Girl and the Lilith Fair. Yeah, I think we'll get some hole at the end of this. Yeah, there was an explosion of women singers. And yeah, these songs that had things like Stupid Girl by Garbage and Celebrity Skin by Hole, they do bring in some Nirvana. I think that's one of the few male singers yeah. we get. But it was a time of women singers and so many that have faded into the ether that I only hear when I listen to 90s on 9 on Sirius XM. But with all these 90s reference, they bring in a very contemporary one. You know, she goes to that payphone, which 
is retro in and of itself. I don't see them around anymore these days because we just got cell phones. The real 90s flashback I had, the one that I felt authentic is, please enter your long distance access code for this call. I'm like, I remember long distance access codes. Yes. Yeah, it, she calls up her group, Yon Rog, and what does he say? Oh, you're on that shithole planet. I'm like, here we go. It, we're going to be obvious about everything that we're doing in this film, aren't we? Going back to that Trump reference. But this was different. This was somebody asked Minerva, have you ever been to Earth? And she goes, once. What a shithole. Yeah, that's funny because she's calling Earth a shithole, but it's also telling us, wait, Minerva's been to Earth? Why was Minerva on Earth? We're going to find out later she was with Yonrog when they were trying to catch Marvell. Yeah, it has multiple purposes, but I think Jacob is right to cite the reason why they use that word and it said by a woman of a different ethnicity is because they want to illustrate that all movies comment on the times that they're made in. And this movie is very much a response to Trump's America, even though it's set primarily in 1995, Clinton America. Yeah, that's what I think of when I think of Rock the Vote is Bill Clinton. And we're in 1995, Bill Clinton would be reelected in 96. So I think if they're trying to make anti-Republican notes, they're not in the right time. That is a very specific term to call Earth. We know why they chose that. One reference I have to ask, though, she's making that phone call at the Slow Club. I only know that is the place where Isabella Rossellini sings in Blue Velvet. Is this a Blue Velvet reference, or am I just too much of a Lynch fan? You know what? I bet that these people are indie enough that that's what that is. I didn't even catch it. But you know what Marvel has done to change cinema more than anything else they've done? is I credit Marvel 100% with the de-aging technology that they started. You know, they really started it with Skinny Steve back in the first Avenger, putting Steve Rogers' head on a different body. Mm -hmm. And then they started the de-aging stuff. We saw Robert Downey Jr. looking like he was about to do some blow in less than zero in Civil War. We saw young Michael Douglas saying greed is good in Ant-Man. Here, Sam Jackson, I love the concept art. They thought about going full on jewels. There is concept art of him with the full fro, but he's looking a lot like he looked in the movie that came out in 95. I'm really thinking, especially during car chases of Die Hard with a Vengeance, Sam Jackson. Amazing. I get this kind of middle manager bureaucrat vibe off of him, which I kind of like because, yeah, you think of Nick Fury in the modern Marvel universe, not 95, and he's like this total badass with his patch. And here, yeah, he's just kind of not that person yet. I will say, though, Coulson, he looks very plastic in this. Jackson looks great with the de-aging. Coulson, it, he had a weird look to him for me. I thought it was Coulson's hair. It looks really tall. And yes, they added some hair to him. But for some reason, Coulson's hair was always distracting to me. I also think they did bad with Ronan. When we do see Ronan later on, <laughs> he looks like a totally different actor. Yeah, it does not look like they got Lee Pace back. But you mentioned Sam Jackson middle management. They cut his entire character arc too. There's a line in the first trailer where Sam Jackson says, truth is, I was ready to hang it up until I met you today. He's supposed to be an agent who had been a spy. He's going to talk about how he was in the Cold War and they knew who the enemy was. He was supposed to be disaffected and ready to quit because he didn't see what he was defending America from. And then finding out there were enemies from above reignited his passion for his career. And that's why he started the Avenger Initiative. None of that's in here. 
I think Sam Jackson's pretty important in this. I would say this movie would not be as successful as it is if you didn't have this middle section with him specifically, the guy we associate as the very face of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, not being in charge and really seeing the origin, not only just for the fun stuff like the eye and all of that, but his whole conception about what S.H.I.E.L.D. could be and how it could protect the world. Yeah, the biggest draw for me for this film, I wasn't not excited for it because it was a woman. I want to put that out there, but the trailers just didn't totally sell me. But I'm like, oh, we're going to get a Nick Fury origin story too. And that's kind of exciting because I like Sam Jackson. I like this character. So that was really my draw. What is Sam Jackson going to do in this film? I got to give some serious props to Sam Jackson. I think he's an actor I take for granted a lot of the time because he's universally good and he's usually cast as a cool MF ever since Pulp Fiction. But if you watch The Winter Soldier and then watch this, it is astonishing the difference in performance. This is a Sam Jackson we've seen before here, a lighthearted Sam Jackson who's jovial and joking again. I see a lot of the diehard with a vengeance Sam Jackson in this, but it is such a stark contrast to the serious, scowling, in-charge, authoritarian Nick Fury. Different tone of voice, different body language. It's more than a shaved head and an eye patch, and he is really good here. And also, you say he's the face of S.H.I.E.L.D., he becomes that, but we get the face of Marvel here. Some scrolls show up and start another action scene. It's going to be a chase on an elevated train in Los Angeles where Veers is chasing after a scroll who shapeshifts into a woman. When she's looking for the scroll, who does she see? Stan Lee sitting there reading his Mallrats script. Was he in that movie? He was. It's a movie in a movie. It makes sense to include Stan Lee in that way. And it got another, aww. Yeah, they actually re-edited this after his death to allow Brie Larson to break character and smile at him, whereas that wouldn't be... Why would she smile at this old man? Right. So, with all of this said, we are now on a train in, in El Segundo heading to downtown LA. I did like the reaction of everybody on the train when she punches the woman really hard. This is a sticking point that I don't understand. The scrolls that are peace-loving and supposedly only want to know coordinates, are now taking shots at her and destroying downtown. And was he really going to kill Sam Jackson in the car when we realized it's not Agent Coulson? I mean, if you're telling me with the big twist that these are peace lovers, then I don't know why they're being so threatening. Yeah, I agree completely. I believe he was going to kill Sam Jackson the same way all the Skrulls tried to kill the Kree when they were discovered. They need to stay undercover. Why did he take a pot shot at, I'm assuming, Veers from the roof? She was already done with her phone call to the Kree. If she were still talking to Jude Law, I could be like, oh, well, he's going to stop that at all costs because he doesn't want to bring them here. But that was already done and she was yapping with Fury. She is the MacGuffin. She, in her brain, has the coordinates of where the lab is, and they think it's on the ground. So the only way I was able to rectify this in my head is it was a stun blast, like Star Trek. Like, if they'd mm -hmm. shot her, it would have knocked her out. Yeah. That's what I assume, too, thinking back on it. I'm like, yeah, they were just going to knock her out because they need whatever's in her head. Like, five come up on the beach, and I do like the shot. I think it's a very pretty shot. Not what I expect to see these scrolls in very good practical makeup Coming out of the water, on the beach, I never associate Marvel with surfing. They transform into these shapeshifters. They split up. What's he going to do? Knock her out and then go 
do what to Fury and Coulson and the Shield guys? Well, there's another guy because they've slipped into the squad car and are impersonating Coulson. What we don't know is the main character, Talos, who I recognize. This couldn't be done to me because I know that actor's voice. Ben Mendelsohn has a very distinctive voice. I could tell it was him. I could look at that practical makeup and say, that's the guy. So when he comes on the screen as Keller, I'm like, oh, I know he's an imposter. It's not a secret. They keep going. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know he's going to be the ultimate bad guy in this film because that's what he always is. Well, they flip that on its head because he ends up being a good guy. But I know in the scene where they're having the alien autopsy, another 90s throwback, there were a lot of those on TV. X-Files is what I was thinking with that specifically. Oh, no, they had literal like alien autopsy where they were claiming they had an alien. Oh, I know. But when you have a secret agency doing an alien autopsy like this, I was thinking X-Files. You know, the other thing is when he kills the alien, there's a car wreck and he gets a cut over his eye. You know what movie I was thinking of was Hot Tub Time Machine. Nope, no. Never thought of that during this film. In Hot Tub Time Machine, in the present day, you have Crispin Glover and he has one arm. And then they go back in time in the Hot Tub Time Machine to the 80s and Crispin Glover has two arms. And throughout (laughs) the whole movie, these guys are watching Crispin Glover do things and like, is that how he loses his arm? And I thought that was going to be this movie. We see the cut. Is that how he loses his eye? (laughs) And it's going to be a recurring thing. It actually is only twice. But yeah, he gets the cut above his eye. His eye is fine from this. I didn't realize that he was missing the patch until this happened. It was funny how I was like, oh, it's just Sam Jackson. He looks like that. I forgot that Fury has his very distinctive patch until he gets the eye injury. And then, of course, yeah, you're realizing, oh, something is very different between now and when we see him in the first Iron Man. I did not recognize Ben Mendelsohn in human form, even though he was director Krennic in Star Wars. And the bad guy in Ready Player One. And if you saw 2018 Robin Hood like I did, despite what the critics said, he's the bad guy in that. I did get a laugh when Sam Jackson and he look under the sheet to see how scrolls are hung. But Sam Jackson goes off on his own to get Veers. And Veers has decided to finally fit in after so many comments about her scuba suit. She steals some grunge clothes off a mannequin, steals a motorcycle. I I actually did have a Nine Inch Nail shirt I wore in high school. I think Brie Larson is more comfortable in these clothes. I feel like she does her best acting when she's not in the suit. Who wouldn't, though? I mean, who would look good in that outfit? I mean... But what is her motivation? We've seen these flashbacks, and in the memory thing, she saw this bar where she was singing karaoke. She picked up a purple stone during the fight. She puts it in and reviews it is information that was taken from her head when she was up in space. Mm -hmm. So it is essentially everything that they know about her, and she just kind of thumbs through it like a picture album and sees this named Ponchos with this black woman she's seen in her dreams and that starts this investigation. It's a very thin lead but she's trying to get to her old pilot buddy. But She doesn't know it's a pilot buddy. She doesn't know she's from Earth. She knows she's seen a woman in a dream. Later on, Fury's going to say, I know a rogue soldier when I see one. I don't see her as having gone rogue. I see her as waiting for her pickup, but she never seemed so curious about her memory. I don't see her anguished about what was I seven years ago. And I also don't see her ever knowing what an internet cafe is or Alta Vista. 
but there's some more 90s jokes as we see Windows 95. I don't think Internet Explorer came with <laughs> Windows 95 version 1. I don't think it was in V1, but... I did think this was the best joke, though, at this internet cafe and losing the connection. They'll do another one later where it's just really slow to load something. I'm like, I feel you. I remember trying to compute in the 90s. Yeah, but they were trying to load an audio CD. Those loaded just fast. It was data CDs that were slow, but okay. I feel like it's just enough. I feel like you got to do it. I feel the audience is totally with the movie. I can feel the shift in gears from the first act to the second is extreme. They were not laughing a lot. They were not engaged during those early moments. It was hard to get positioned on the story. And now I can feel them. Once she gets saddled up with Fury, they are a good pair. And we want to see where they're going to go. And I'm exactly there too. The first act of this film, especially the first time I watched it, confused the hell out of me. I'm like, what am I supposed to know about this character? That's why I made sure to go back and see it the very next day. And it's so much better on a second viewing. I've got to say, when you know where it's going, the first act is so much more comprehensible. But both viewings, once she and Nick Fury get together, maybe because they've been in three movies together, they have a good repartee. I like their back and forth on screen. Nick Fury's like, so the Kree are a race of warriors, heroes, warrior heroes. So Veers really drank the Kool-Aid, huh? She thinks that they're heroic in their fighting of the Skrulls. I wish we had more time. Hala was such barely there. She just was there long enough to get venom goo all over her and then leave on a mission that wasn't very important. If she had been abducted by Skrulls that needed inside her head while she was graduating from Kree Academy, that might have been a cleaner way of telling us what they want us to understand about the setup. But they're going to Project Pegasus because they went just to the bar so they could have a conversation and find out Nick Fury doesn't like diagonal cut toast. A moment of humor that, again, it doesn't feel right for the character that she would do that. If you're a refugee soldier on an alien world and you have a government operative interrogating you. Well, she doesn't get him to talk about toast. She says, tell me something only you would know. And it happens to be about toast. To me, that feels in character. I mean, what the character that I'm reading here is someone that doesn't have to worry, doesn't have to have anguish because she's tough enough. She can like, I can handle anything that comes at me. And with that omniscience and power is kind of just toying. What I think is a more strange choice. We have them get inside that Pegasus base and we see Sam Jackson lose his shit over a cute little cat. And Brie Larson is like, no, I have no interest in playing with cats. Is that too aloof? I mean, the internet has taught us. We love our animals. We <laughs> love to see cats do goofy things. We'll watch it for hours. This is the only reason my girls wanted to see this film is because I told them there was a cat in it. Yeah, Goose is a real winner here. And I think it's important for a lot of different ways. But the fact that she doesn't want to play with it, I think they calculated to show that she wasn't some gooey, emotional girl. But why can't she be? I mean, then who is she? I didn't take it that way. I thought it was very obvious that I didn't know about Chewie. I read about Chewie the cat. After I saw the film, I'm like, that cat's got to be an alien. And so I just figured that's why she was staying away from it. I thought that was an obvious thing they were going to do. I didn't notice until the second viewing that when you do get the flashback of her with Annette Benning, that the scrolls are pulling from her brain, Goose the cat is in it. Yes. Who is Marvel's partner or cat? It's hung around this Project Pegasus base for six years, just on whatever it can find, maybe <laughs> killing some troops for food. And 
Yeah, Sam Jackson goes nuts over it. Brie Larson, I actually like her better knowing that she is allergic to cats. Because I'm like, I couldn't work with a cat. I'm deathly allergic to cats. Oh, yeah. So she was never on screen with a cat. It was always a puppet or a CGI. Stuart, are you saying you have a problem with Sam Jackson cuddling up to the cat? No, I'm saying, why can't a woman play with a cat? Do they have to make her so tough and aloof that she cares nothing for what's obviously an adorable animal anyone would stop and pet? See, and I feel like this film, it's about her and feminism and all that. I feel like a lot of that just goes away. There might be some subtext here, but ultimately, I don't even think this is about a woman or girls empowering in the way that you have like with Wonder Woman or even a moment in Return of the King with Eowyn when she stabs the Witch King because no man could kill her, but she is no man. I feel like Captain Marvel could have been the male Marvel by the end of this and it wouldn't make a whole lot of difference. It comes back, but in this portion... They play a song about a girl that's not bringing it back. Well... The whole ending, but we'll get there. Here, though, yeah, I don't feel like Sam Jackson is mansplaining that they can get out of the cell by using scotch tape and she just stands there and lets him do it. Here is, I guess, what I was asking for. Here is a man that is showing kindness. It hasn't happened in her life so far. And can we read the subtext? It's because he was black in a bureaucracy that didn't let him advance. You said they cut down his role. Maybe it was he was going to retire because he didn't like what the higher-ups were doing to him. That would have been some reason to explain why, but it's coming late in the film is all I'm saying. We have no example of her having a partnership with another man. Again, they seem to have hesitation to do anything that would link her with masculinity at all, including a cat, which is always seen as a symbol of feminism. They just don't want to play to it. And by constantly distancing themselves from what's done in the past, they have made a very distant character. I was thinking about this and I went through all 20 previous Marvel movies. Every single Marvel hero in a movie has had a romantic interest. Thor had Jane, Iron Man had Pepper, Cap had Peggy and then had Sharon later on, Doctor Strange had the nurse, Bucky had Cap, even Vision and Scarlet Witch, Black Widow and Hulk. The way you humanize a character in many ways is by seeing their relations with other people. The first time I saw this movie, I kind of thought that Danvers and Rambo were a couple. It feels that way. It does. There's a lot of family photos where it's like two moms with a kid. She just happened to have all these photos sitting around. There's a relationship there. She's got photos ready to go. This is subtextual, but it's the closest thing you see to any connection Carol Danvers has at all is one friend. She partners with Nick Fury, but I never get that they're friends. I don't ever get a romantic connection between her and Jude Law, which would be the obvious way to play it, is the abusive boyfriend route that she has to break free of, but they do nothing here, and I think it's because they're afraid of a gushy girl, whereas they've done it 20 times with men, and nobody said, well, Tony Stark's a gushy man. I don't necessarily even need a romance, but... To have her have some kind of connection to someone in this film to humanize her. She does feel like an alien. Why would you want to hang out with this person? I'm not going to say being aloof makes you likable or not, but what's her personality? Yeah, what we're going to eventually realize, and, and we start to see it here, is that she's human. She is a human being. She is not an alien. When they get into the Hall of Records, they pull up a photo, and she was there back in 1989 as a co-pilot when they see Annette Benning and have her identified as Wendy Law 
Lawson. She's the inventor of the light speed engine. We now have established by this point in the movie, probably halfway, our mark, we have established that if we thought that she was Cree or some blue-blooded alien, absolutely not. She does have a past that is very much tied to this earth. But much like St. Louis hockey fans, she does bleed blue. The blood transfer has given her the blue blood of a Cree. So did she think she was a full-blooded Cree? Probably. Again, this movie does a bad job of explaining this characterization, but I do like the action once Mendelssohn shows up as the head of S.H.I.E.L.D. and everybody is ordered to capture or kill both Danvers and Fury. And Yeah, peace-loving scroll trying to kill people again. Phil Coulson, I only caught it on the second time. In the background, they tell Coulson, hey, rookie, go talk to that guard. But Coulson is brand new to the team and he's going to let Fury go. And guess what? You know he's human because he goes with his emotion. It's just a feeling he has to let Fury go. Yeah, they underline it later when they're flying around that it's stated that sometimes to be human is to go against orders. And I guess that's her message to learn as well when she's going to go against what Jan Rog wants her to do. And they do steal a quad jet, which I looked at. I'm like, that kind of looks like a Quinjet if I squint. I'm assuming that's where they're going to go. I also found out after the fact this Pegasus base, it's from the Avengers. Yeah, it was in the opening. Yeah. Where the Tesseract battle is with Loki. Yeah, I didn't catch that myself, but I like that callback. I like that this is when S.H.I.E.L.D. decided we're going to start taking over this base and get the Tesseract. Yeah, we don't really know what S.H.I.E.L.D. is, but they don't seem to have a whole lot of power because being level three just got him thrown in some concrete room. This is Air Force and NASA have created this base. It's not a S.H.I.E.L.D. base yet. Again, it's a reminder that in 1995, all I'd say is go watch Blade, but in 1995, (laughs) Marvel is shit. They just don't have any power. Blade was a hit. (sighs) Trying to figure out when in 1995 this is. Windows 95 is out. That was late 95. There's a calendar that says June. So maybe they didn't tear it off, but it's at least June and it looks like summertime. I have some real problems with that because they're going to play some No Doubt that came out in November and wasn't actually even a hit for a couple of years. There's tons of that little stuff and they throw all that in sometimes because it's just fun to have that song because it's commenting on what they want. To underline. All right. But they end up going to Louisiana and see Maria Rambeau and her daughter, Monica. Monica Rambeau, Photon from the comics. So will she show up in a future Marvel movie now 35 years old and get superpowers? Oh, interesting. You're right. Because without that time has passed, she'll be an adult when we get to Endgame. Yes. And they clearly set her up as someone that's going to fly into space. She has been wearing Auntie Carol's old jacket. She has dreams of going to the stars just as much as young Carol does as well. This is where we finally get names associated to her human self before they were Creed, as it were, before they got the blue blood and became an alien. I got the Veers thing. It took me about a half an hour, but... Right around the time she hits Earth is when I realized Carol Danvers, Veers. Veger, yeah, they're going to pull that game. Uh It's a sci-fi trope. They do it quite often. Zardoz is my favorite. (laughs) This is where we're going to have a lot of talky stuff. We're going to try to have a human connection between Maria and Carol and all those family photos. And there's going to be a dropped line by Monica that Carol's family were mean or Carol's dad was mean. And so this was Carol's real family, again, making me wonder how much. And then... 
Talos shows up and he's pulling a freaking Mr. Blonde in Reservoir Dogs. He comes in drinking a freaking milkshake. Like when Mr. Blonde comes into Reservoir Dogs and he stopped for a soda after the shootout. Yeah, I didn't understand what that was about. Is that to tell us, look, he's really a good guy. We could trust him now. We get a different energy. When a killer walks into a room, usually they're brandishing weapons. They're lording over their power. If they come in drinking a milkshake, I am believing him instantly when he's saying, this is me under no false pretenses telling you what happened. He becomes trustworthy. Milkshakes can just do that. Here is where if you wanted to take this movie and look at it from a different point of view, I almost did my plot summary the way I did Rocky 3 and tell it from the Cree point of view. This is where the Skrulls capture an enemy soldier and brainwash her into believing their rhetoric instead of the Cree rhetoric. Because they're like, we're just refugees. We aren't terrorists. We just want a place to live. Your people came in and bombed us. Yeah, yeah, I believe all that's true. I also, you know, go watch The Hurt Locker. <laughs> Whose side are you on? No, see, this is where I get the high school paper on how we're treating immigrants. They just want to find a place to live. They're refugees. A lot of talk about refugees and claiming asylum these days. That's where I went with it is we're just looking for a peaceful place to live and the Cree are hunting us down and they won't let us get far enough away from them. They want to take us over. Yeah, statistically speaking, that is the accurate interpretation. Most people that come to America are looking to better themselves and have a better life and they are not here to explode a bomb. That is true. However, we have never recovered from the psyche of 9-11, and our politics reflect that, and this movie is trying to simplify the message to not judge books by their cover. I just don't think the immigrant thing holds up when you take Talos's story that the Kree came to the Skrull world and said, we're taking over, and the Skrull said, no, we're not going to let you take over, and they became resistance fighters. Again, this movie, I don't think, wants to get into that, and if you're trying to make real-world comparisons, they won't reduce. You can't simplify the Middle East conflict in that way. I'm not going to get into those politics, but I do think that this movie, where they really succeed, I mean, this lesson is heavy-handed here, where they really succeed is with the flurkin. The cat is the brilliant stroke because that's the thing that we assumed was just a cat because it looked like just a cat and it wasn't. And when it assimilates, at first it's just stowing away and they're like, why does this cat keep popping up? That was so funny to see him in the Garfield pose. I mean, it was obviously CGI, but when they're pulling some G's and the cat is flattened against the boxes. Right. But in the end, we realize that this cat is really alien. It's really foreign. It's nothing like what we know. But we love it now because we've had time to assimilate. And that's what they're trying to say in general with the messages of, of don't let the visuals trick you. People can be very diverse and they can assimilate. So, all right, that's fine. That's where I'm going to stop with trying to read the movie. Anything else would be to rip this movie apart for its simplistic views. And yet I still think that they put these views in here trying to send a message. I think their message is muddied and I think they bit off more than they could chew. Oh, yeah, they're going to District 9 this movie. I mean, they go up into space because they know Marvell, who was Wendy Lawson, she hid something somewhere and it's actually up in space. It's been cloaked in a Cree ship and it's full of scroll refugees. You know, I find a lot of attempts at humor in this film forced and 
like I said, pithy, but there's a few that work and they're almost all right here where, first of all, they put the mask on the cat and the 90s reference that felt right, because you'd probably still say this today, is it's a cat, it's not Hannibal Lecter. And then when Talos finds out the lab is in orbit and he turns, he's like, aren't you my science guy? And the science officer's there. It felt like a joke from the Orville, but it still made me laugh a little bit, the science officer. And then he's trying to prove himself. I can make that quadjet space safe. I, I, I can do that. <laughs> trying to prove he's worth something. Well, here's why some of these things aren't great laugh lines. I don't understand what you're talking about. They speed so fast to the ideas of where they're going and what they're doing. I'm like, wait, I don't... I don't understand. Let's go back to 1989. There is a space lab that's invisible floating around Earth, and Brie Larson's Carol Danvers had no problem getting in this new ship to fly to space. This is just a few years after the Challenger, and she's completely comfortable going into outer space to a laboratory. She wasn't going to the laboratory. The laboratory is a Cree ship that I guess had its own cloaking device, but that Marvel stole, I'm assuming, and just put into orbit. She parked it above the planet. She said lives are at stake. She had to get up there and help those refugees. And this was her ride to go do that. Right. But Carol Danvers never made it there. Because a spaceship flies down and shoots them down. Yes. But the plan was that morning, should the Kree spaceship not nick them, to go up into outer space to an invisible lab and help refugees. That was the plan? I thought they were just doing a test flight. No, that was Marvell's plan, but she never told Carol Danvers this. I was wondering why she was on that ship. I'm like, why are you put the engineer on a test flight? That is very risky. She was going to pilot it herself, it said. And Carol's like, if there are lives at stake, I'm going to pilot it. Right. And so this alien said, okay, knowing that she was going to have to tell her, take a right at the next, like, asteroid, because we're actually going to outer space. You're not any longer an Air Force pilot. Yeah, basically. That is muddy and not satisfying. And that is the problem is that they know that they don't have a really great storyline here. So they're skimming right over all of the stuff and just trying to get you to focus on the stuff that matters. And that is Carol, as she has many times in her life, taken a tumble, fallen down. And the truth is she got up to fight the Kree that were coming for Marvel. And it was Jan Rog himself. Yeah, that scroll that we saw at the beginning is replaced by Jan Rog. We're seeing the true memory now. That's why in the beginning when we saw the scroll coming out of the distance, we were like, they replay that here and it's not a scroll, it's Jan Rog. And yeah, she is in a Mexican standoff with him. He wants the power source. He doesn't care about the engine. He wants the power source. She thinks that's the engine. She shoots it. It's like the Hulk. She just gets <laughs> yes. irradiated. Here's my question. First Avenger, that Tesseract just falls somewhere. I assumed that S.H.I.E.L.D. found it. We see it at the end of the first Avenger. Howard Stark was looking for Cap in the 40s. Never found Cap, but found the Tesseract and kept it with SSR, which became S.H.I.E.L.D. So somehow the Tesseract went from SSR to Project Pegasus, which is why Marvel came to Earth. Marvel knew she needed the Tesseract. The Tesseract was on Earth. So she came here, infiltrated the Air Force, took the Tesseract for these experimental ships. And this is where S.H.I.E.L.D. gets it back to show to Selvig at the end of Thor 1. Okay, so there's an unexplored adventure where Marvel gets that Tesseract. Okay. 
I buy it enough. I mean, I'm not having any of these kinds of hiccup problems. It seems like they're trying to tell an origin story, not only for Captain Marvel, but for everything Avengers that we've seen. This is actually, in chronology, the first movie you should watch. Second, Captain America. Oh, right. Of course. But they get up to the spaceship. Yeah, they find the Tesseract. I was surprised because somebody in my audience a preview night went the tesseract and i'm like i think it's just blue energy no it was the tesseract and captain marvel can hold it which the red skull couldn't the red skull held it and it disappeared yeah that's the big thing with star lord was when he's able to grab that infinity stone you got to have power to be able to do that thanos has to have a special gauntlet made to do it then she puts it in a Fonzie lunchbox. There's a baseball up there, a pinball machine. Why is all this there? Because Skrull refugees have been living on this ship for six years of life, and it's Talos's wife and son. Again, this feels like the displacement of families from Syria in the Middle East. It's what we're kind of dealing with right now with the mass exodus of that country. Oh, see, seeing family separated. Again, I'm thinking about children being put into cages and separated from their family. Again, there's a lot of current stuff that this is tapping into. But that's so current, the writers couldn't be responding to it. Yeah, exactly my thought too. Although I will say Endgame was completely filmed before this movie. So if you think Brie Larson had a chance here to get comfortable in the character and then go to Endgame, no. Mm-hmm. But this is where you really sympathize with the Skrulls. That's the biggest trick is if you know the comics, the Skrulls are evil. They look like evil green aliens. They have pointy ears. You're supposed to think they're evil. They want to keep everyone on their toes. They want to surprise everyone, including their long-term readers. They don't want people to have read in advance what's going to happen because you know the comic books doesn't mean that that's the future of the movies. And they've surprised us in this way before. Let's not forget Iron Man 3, Iron Man's toughest villain the mandarin ended up being a punchline trevor yeah here yes the kree are going to finally show up i guess only 22 hours have passed they now are the bad guys and even yan rog is just like she knows she knows what she knows that you know it's all propaganda i mean this is really empire rebellion type stuff where yan rog is like i like being evil Let's just break it down, the difference of motive. The Skrulls want the Tesseract because that power will get them to a far enough part of the universe no one could ever reach them, and thus they could colonize and have a home of their own. The Kree want this power because they can win the war with it and crush the Skrulls. So in that respect, they are more aggressive, no matter what's happened in the war between them and who did what. Again, you look at the Middle East, everyone's got blood on their hands but they are still wanting to win this fight by being abusive. And that's what makes them villainous in this scenario. And they put Captain Marvel in bonds, too. She has to go see the Supreme Intelligence again. No, she's going to the sunken place. This is totally get out here. <laughs> yes. And obvious music cues, Nirvana, come as you are, because that's what Carol has had to accept the whole time, is just be who you are. Take that little thing off the back of your head and embrace your powers. So I guess Carol Danvers spent the entire 22 hours listening to the radio because that song came out long after she disappeared from Earth, but I don't think <laughs> it would have been top 10 in 95. When did she disappear? 1989. She was partying to Guns N' Roses. Grunge totally eradicated all of that. <laughs> yeah, maybe she was into Bleach, but yeah, never mind it not come out yet. 
Yeah, I love this moment. As a visual, just as setting a mood, there's something very eerie about coming into this, listening to that song. It makes Annette Benning seem really, really scary, particularly when you punch her in the mouth and she's swallowing your fist. It is honestly my favorite scene in the movie. I think it's the best use of music as atmosphere because unlike Guardians of the Galaxy, where the music was played, but the characters were supposed to be hearing it, in this case, most of the time, only the audience is hearing it, and it feels very affected. But here, the characters are hearing the music. It's an eerie guitar riff. Annette Benning is really giving a great performance here as she's strutting. She's like, I don't have to play games anymore. I'm super powerful. You're nothing to me. And the only thing that doesn't work is when we try to see Annette Benning throw Brie Larson and they have to really quick cut that. Yeah, I mean, if you are the supreme intelligence, everything under you is lesser, and that's the message. Everyone is subjugated by that. That is what the theme of this movie, when you get it back to the ideas of feminism, women of today, is the fact that they constantly hear subliminal messages and real messages verbalized out loud by some really rotten men that, yes, you're weak, you're flawed, you're helpless, you're emotional. Without us, you're only human. And that ends up becoming a rallying cry for Captain Marvel. Let's just call her that now because she's changed the colors of her suit and she's ready to kick ass. She realizes that, yes, what has been holding her back, it's kind of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, that she could have gone home at any time that she wanted to. Oftentimes, it's changing her mind is the biggest battle. And she thought, I believe, it's not ever made entirely clear, but that the thing on her ear was giving her the power. Right. When, in fact, it's taking her power away. Right. But I did like this Matrix-like scene. It's what I kept going to the Matrix with this. Like Very it was, much so. Oh, yeah. yeah, with the whole mouth and the fit. You know, Neo has his mouth erased. Yeah, I did get a Matrix vibe. Oh, I forgot about that. But again, 90s movie. This is a 90s retro thing. It, it makes sense to go back there. But... I think if your whole thing is men keeping women down, it would have made sense for the supreme intelligence to be male. I want to finesse that. It's not men keeping women down. It's negative thinking keeping women down. It's not all men out in some collective to get you. It is the thoughts that have been planted in your head. To me, that's much more important to emphasize. It's all the difference in the world. Men are not the enemy. Except we never saw a woman tell her she couldn't do it in those flashbacks. It was always a man. I'm just saying it felt like they were hammering one message. Men keep saying you can't do it, even all the way up to Jan Rog telling you you can't do it. And now we have Annette Benning saying you can't do it. But Annette Benning was also the one who believed she could do it because, yes, she was Marvel. But in the end, is it because she's a woman? You know, they're going to play just a girl, which seems to emphasize she is able to defeat all these creeps and embrace her powers because she's a woman. No, it's because she embraces being a human and being emotional and all those things that make up a human. So I do feel like that message, again, I think of Wonder Woman. She's the one that's able to cross no man's land. That's not deep symbolism, but it sends a message that no man's land, but the woman could get across it. Here, I just don't feel it has that element. It's just about being human. So just a girl. All right. Again, it's the soundtrack. The song's a little ahead of its time, but... If you're a riot girl, I imagine you are cheering as Captain Marvel is now invincible. She gets shot by a sniper rifle and is like, and? And with no sweat whatsoever, with her Dragon Ball Z eye powers, because she really <laughs> looks like live action Dragon Ball Z with all the glowy, she is able to stop everybody. She is so powerful. There's no threat that could ever 
possibly stop her. There's no struggle here at the end. She could kick Superman's ass. Superman at least had to choose between which nuke to stop and then turn the Earth backwards. She's going to stop 25 nukes. She's going to stop all the nukes. And here's my issue is, again, they could have set it up with the line. Maybe there's a whole cut scene. But if she ever realized her real potential, she'd be the most powerful person in the universe. Like, set something up. But no, just at the end, she took the little thing off the back of her head. And now she could blow up all the nukes. Even Ronan the Accuser is afraid of her and is going to run away. I like all this. This is what I wish more of the movie was. You feel this is earned, though? Like, just all of a sudden, she's the most powerful thing ever. I like the idea that the only thing limiting her... her mindset and that this stupid little thing on the back of her head that she thought was controlling her because that's what for me that's kind of what oppression feels like it's a voice in the back of your head that prevents you from acting on your wishes and yeah the idea that it's just as simple as plucking this thing away and saying i'm free is really exciting i've got no problem with that Stuart. i love the little montage where fall down fall down fall down then stand up stand up stand up and then she stands up you love that i think the word ham-fisted feminism is what came to mind i mean there's a lot of ham-fisted feminism in this that is a complaint of mine but i like that moment that didn't feel like a moment about feminism is just this is what you do as a human to be empowered as you stand up every time you get knocked down it's the fact that now if this was a standalone if we had never had a marvel film this was just random superhero movie or random sci-fi movie okay you become all powerful you're neo in the matrix at the end flying around that's fine but within the context of this universe they've set up it's too much power and it feels unearned and there's no stakes now she's invincible she can do everything so she does and there's no struggle whatsoever there's no stakes Uh, Be that as it may, I greatly enjoy her taking on the missiles. What I would say is that I don't feel like it's nearly as thrilling as Wonder Woman charging out onto that battlefield and taking the full brunt of all of those bullets. Like, that was a scene to truly be in awe of. Here, because they've edited the movie the way that it has, and so much of the time I've been disconnected with Brie Larson, I really love her in the Mohawk suit doing this, but, like, it doesn't linger. I don't get the rush that I want now that she is all-powerful. And I want to spend time in that. And I feel like they're like, well, you know, we've only got about 12 minutes left. Let's tidy this up and go. To compare to Wonder Woman, yes, I like that scene in Wonder Woman so much better. I would like a little bit of that here, but this is so much better than Wonder Woman fighting CGI Ares at the end. At least they didn't go that bad. But Well, it's CGI Captain Marvel fighting now. I don't think the effects are great. I guess that Marvel just put all its money in Infinity War and Endgame because I feel Black Panther had some spotty CGI. This has some spotty CGI. Yeah. It's noted that for all the Oscars Black Panther was up for, visual effects, it was not. And for good reason. That Panther versus Panther fight was not good. I can't get excited for Brie Larson when she is so CGI'd. She is literally glowing and her eyes are turning yellow and she's just a CGI yellow blur. And every so often we cut to Brie Larson with a big smile on her face. Like I can do all this, which I wish that the movie had spent more time building that up so that I felt I was celebrating with her. But one thing was getting me amped up during the scene. We've talked a lot about the music that they sourced from the nineties for this, but here at the end, Once Just a Girl ends, we really get a focus on Pinar Toprak's score. I'm not familiar with her. No, it's really a good score. I think it serves the scene, but I also think it's musically rich and something I'll enjoy listening to outside of the movie. 
it's the closest thing I get to being excited as Brie Larson kicks everybody's ass without breaking a sweat. There were several scenes where her fist glowed and she wanted to throw a punch and she was told, control your anger, control your anger. I still think that's a good idea. I don't think she needs to go around because she has all of this power just doing it or she's going to turn into Dark Phoenix. I mean, we're going to get that movie in a couple months and I don't think it's going to be a happy story. I do think you have to limit your anger. But yeah, your potential. Not to limit your potential and to be curious about how you can use your power is exciting to behold. It should be fun to watch. It's just too abbreviated here. It's No sooner has she done all of this than she's going to run away to some distant galaxy for the next 24 years. Why that frustrates me is because, okay, we get back down to Earth and, you know, they give her friend one thing to do. She shows off her pilot license. She flies down into a canyon and blows up the other female. Minerva goes down. I really like that. It, it reminded me so much of Independence Day, though, where you had Will Smith flying in the canyon. Yeah, another 90s movie. Maybe that was an intentional thing that they wanted you to feel. All I know is it wasn't her movie. If, if this movie is anyone's movie, it's the cat's movie. The cat <laughs> is getting all the cheer lines. When it spits out the tentacles and swallows the Tesseract or beats up the guards, that's when I feel like I'm with the film. And... They just did Groot, right? I mean, the eating the Tesseract was funny, but when the cat shoots out the tentacles and slams the people around, that is a direct Guardians of the Galaxy 1 thing. You telling me you wouldn't watch a Rocket Groot Goose team-up film? I'm saying I would absolutely love it, but <laughs> no, I'm just saying I was just thinking those tentacles were just like Groot tendrils, but hey... I love Groot. I love Goose. We're finally kind of getting the spark that I expect in Marvel movies anytime there's an action scene. Like, we want this exhilaration. And it's weird to me that, okay, they go back to Earth, and I kind of like this moment that Jude Law is baiting her, being like, impress me. I want to see what you can do without your power. Can you really take me down? And I want to see it too, because she can do so much with her power. I want her to show me she's cool if she doesn't have this unstoppable superpower. And see, I like that she just blasts him, because that's what she's wanted to do this whole time, what she's been told. Again, it's muddy about just being 100% emotional. Yes, you should have some control, but it fits this moment. There is a gender disparity in general. I mean, God knows gender is more complicated these days to talk about, but I'll just speak very bluntly in the idea that when we have women leading these charges, typically they want to end conflict. When men lead these charges, the battlefield glory is how they prove that they're a man. We, we talked about it with Hunger Games, and you were like, well, why can't we save her the battles? It's because she doesn't want to fight, and that's what she does here. She grabs him and keeps him alive. Keep in mind, she didn't kill him. She puts him in a pod and kicks him off to go home and tell Supreme Intelligence, I'm going to end it. I'm not interested in perpetuating battle. I'm interested in ending it. But yet... Her entire character arc is at the beginning of the film. He says, come at me without your powers. And she uses her powers and feels bad about it. At the end of the movie, he says, come at me without your powers. She uses her powers and doesn't feel bad about it. That is her whole arc. It's a moment. Yeah, I don't know if it's a wise one. I mean, anytime you're trying to represent all women and all women's issues in one film, it's going to be a little bit overloaded. I don't know if I needed all those details, but it's a crowd pleaser. And anything you can do to get the crowd excited, I think, is a wise thing to do now that we're here at the climax. Oh, it was funny in the way that Indy shooting the swordman was funny because mm -hmm. they're standing there and I'm thinking about our Sergio Leone Westerns. They got their hands at their hips. I thought it was going to be like a quick draw. And in 
the middle of his come at me, come at me. You expect her to come at him. She just shoots him. I mean, that that's exactly like the swordsman who does all the posturing. And then he's just like, all right, I have a gun. Right. And we're having fun with the character who has not been fun. And again, you can make the stance. She doesn't owe you fun. She doesn't need to smile for you. But I do think, yeah, in the relationship between audience and movie and entertainer and the people that have paid to see them, you do owe the people a good time. And it's coming a little late. I was going to emphasize that. That is not a feminist issue. That is why we go to the movies, to be entertained, to be thrilled. Again, you could have a film that's all about gender roles and feminism and where you can confront the audience about those attitudes, but this is a Marvel film. It's about having those joyous little moments, and there's not a whole lot of them here. Oh, I gotta disagree there. Once they got to Earth, I had fun. And I'm not just talking about the 90s references, but those did mostly make me smile. But Captain Marvel confiscating Fury's pager when he calls for help, or the bonding scenes between Carol and Monica... I did enjoy several of those. Monica is a real fun presence on screen. And Ben Mendelsohn does have a lot of character as Talos here in these later scenes where they're at the house. I think he becomes a fun character. And I got a big laugh. The closest we'll ever get to Sam Jackson dropping an F-bomb in the Marvel Universe is Mother Flurkin because of all things... What takes out Nick Fury's eye but the flurkin? My problem is it's unprovoked. He's like holding goose and it just scratches him for some reason. Well, I had a little bit of a problem with it because I did expect something a bit more serious when it came to Nick Fury's eye. It was set up to be more serious when Fury talks about it in The Winter Soldier. He has a line. Okay, I don't remember this line. When he's talking to Captain America about the helicarrier plot and Captain America says, what about trust? Nick Fury says, the last time I trusted somebody, I lost an eye. He trusted that cat. Yeah, yeah that's some bullshit. That early on, on the second viewing, I get it. He looks at the cat and goes, I'm trusting you not to eat me. And the cat didn't eat him. The cat clawed his eye. And oh, does he actually say trust? Yes. I, they really worked that in then to fit with Winter Soldier. Yes. Again, ham-fisted to try to say who he trusted. I did like the joke at the end with Coulson. Did the Kree really burn out your eyes so, and you wouldn't tell them? I will never confirm nor deny. <laughs> but so everyone in S.H.I.E.L.D. thinks it's mission related. It just because it has been so mysterious and brought up in Winter Soldier that to make it a hot tub time machine like joke is a bad choice. I feel like it's Marvel. I feel like it's the difference between Marvel and DC. Yeah, here's the thing. If this was 2014 or whatever, that would have really annoyed me. I'm like, I wanted it to go the Winter Soldier way where it was grounded and dark. And you know what? Marvel, no, it's gone the Guardians way. I really feel like that kind of changed their direction of the universe. And it is just more lighthearted. And okay, we're going to have a cat take out his eye. Yeah, I think it's the right choice to keep people entertained. Again, the cat's a hit. I hope the cat is an endgame. Yeah, I do too. I really, <laughs> the cat is my favorite character in this movie. I, I gotta say though, the one the most eye-rolling moment, no pun intended, I guess, since we're talking about Nick Fury's eye, is he's working on what, the protector initiative? And then he looks at that picture of Carol Danvers and her jet, and it's Carol, Avenger, 
Danvers, and he changes that name. And I turned to my wife and I said, hey, does he want to give Han his last name too? Like this, <laughs> oh, hated it. But I have to ask you, Arnie, specifically, because I know Stuart doesn't know. I also turned to my wife at one point when they're talking about these scrolls, where are they going to go? And they're like, can we stay here on Earth? And I turned to my wife, I'm like, they're going to become cows. <laughs> Because that is the punchline. If you read that Fantastic Four story, yes. when the scrolls show up, I can't remember why they can't shapeshift from being a cow, but they're stuck in the form of a cow. And I thought they were going to just love being bovine. And we're going to get a shot of them just chewing the grass as cows. That did not happen. I did like the scene when they're going to space because this felt real to me when they're like, can you become a filing cabinet? I mean, you would want to know. Yes, I, I'm like, oh, they're going to become cows. They're asking them about their abilities. But I love Talos's reaction. Why would I want to be a filing cabinet? But I did like that exchange. They never answer it, but it was fun geek questions that were inserted there. But no, they're going to, at light speed, I don't know if it's Captain Marvel pushing them at light speed or if they have the engine. I'm a little confused. But they're going to caravan at light speed to some new planet. And she knows she's going away for a long time. He makes a big deal of like, turn around and look at the earth one more time. It's a teary goodbye with Maria. She feels like she's making a choice by doing this of a sacrifice. But she has no memory still of her old self. Right. I don't know why. It's, she spent more time in space with her consciousness than she has on Earth. Be that as it may, why is it going to take her 24 years to relocate someone? Particularly when she told Jude Law, I'm coming to end it. Wouldn't it make more sense to stop Cree aggression than to move refugees so far away from them? I assume that's what she's going to do is take on the Cree. Why move them at all? We're not moving a bit. We're going to plant our flag in this soil. Well, she's one person and they got a whole army, so she's got to do two things at once. There's two fronts to that war. I thought... Watching what I saw, and particularly Ronan seemed to have that impression as well, she was powerful enough to take them all down as one person. I agree. And I liked Ronan's line. It makes me wonder if they're going to do with Captain Marvel what they did with Wonder Woman. We had the first Wonder Woman set in World War One. The second Wonder Woman's still going to be a period piece prequel in the 80s. I wonder if they're going to have the next Captain Marvel film be in the aughts. Are we nostalgic for the aughts? That makes me feel old. By the time it comes out, that'll be 20 years ago. But when Ronan says, we'll come back for the weapon, and the other guy's like, the energy source, the woman. So I feel like there's unfinished business there that if they just solve it the way they solved Jane and Thor's breakup with a single line, it's going to be unsatisfying. And then this leaves the question. She left that pager and says, only in emergencies. And it has a funny line. Nick Fury's like, you think I'm going to crank call you? But isn't Chitauri opening a wormhole above Earth perhaps an emergency? I was wondering that same thing because Fury put together the Avengers because he's afraid of something coming from the sky because of this movie, apparently. But when the Chitauri show up, eh. He's got his Avengers. I guess that's why it's not a big enough emergency. Somebody did ask Kevin Feige, why didn't Fury call Captain Marvel before? The only thing I think is Captain Marvel worthy is the Chitauri attack, because that was a global attack. They still equate it to 9-11 in the Marvel Universe. But I could see why you wouldn't hit the pager for Ultron or for the Dark Elves, but... I don't want to hit play for the Dark Elves. What is she so doing that's more important? Is I guess all, all I really want... It begs the question, 
what with someone all powerful, as you said, so powerful, there's nothing she can't do. What would it take 24 years to do a person like that? I just can't imagine how many homes she must have built for these refugees. <laughs> She's like Jimmy Carter, Habitat for Humanity. What Kevin Feige said is two things. First, she says it has to be a real emergency. And second, how do you know Fury never hit the button? We never saw him hit it, but as we're going to see in the first credit scene, it's not like she answers immediately. Is this scene, is this, I believe one of the other Marvel films, maybe is Ant-Man, where they actually took footage that was going to come from the next film and they had it as part of the cut scene. Is this a scene from Endgame or is this just a filler? To, we're not going to see her show up in that film. She's just going to be there. Oh, I think they've told us. The end game is her beating Thanos. She will be the one. I thought that was Ant-Man because they're bringing him back. What Kevin Feige has said to that, because everybody is saying what I felt walking out of the theater. If she was in the last movie, you don't need the Avengers. Captain Marvel could have just stopped Thanos and the Black Order and everybody else alone. But half of all life is already dead. Beating Thanos isn't the mission of Endgame. Thanos is done. Thanos is a farmer if you watch the trailer. So it's not a fight against Thanos. Good point. But I do think that this is just a scene from the next movie that, again, was completely filmed before this. So we're just seeing the arrival of this, just like, as you said, in Ant-Man, we saw the scene in Civil War where Bucky had his arm in a vice. And I think there's been a couple other instances where we just see a scene from the next movie, even all the way back to Coulson driving up to Thor's hammer in the desert. I feel like the Fury office scene should have been the mid-stinger. We should have ended with her shooting off into space credits and then mid-scene, which I would you like, Mr. Fury, end on this one. But it always seems like they want to end on cute, right? They always like the laugh. They aren't playing the drums. In my premiere viewing, when the credits were rolling, people were like, well, what about the Tesseract? It's still in the Florkin. No, they weren't. They were. Come on, you know that thing's going to cough it up. I'm not even joking. And then we get the scene where it's coughing up the hairball, which I found funny. I mean, cats, if you've ever been around them, they do this thing. Oh, yeah, it's disgusting. And it coughs up the Tesseract. And the people who said that literally on the way out said, see, they know their fan base. They knew we were going to have a problem with that. This is why we love Marvel. This is insanity. This is crazy. They needed this continuity to know where the Tesseract came from. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. I'm just telling you what I overheard. And I told you I was eye rolling at my audience in some places. That was one of them. I'm like, I'm scratching my eye out like Nick Fury. I can't believe this. I'm surprised Fury kept the flurkin after it took his eyeball. Well, I think it sets the tone. I think by ending it this way, it told us that this movie is not one of the really dire, serious Winter Soldier ones, not Civil War. It is much lighter. It's not quite Ant-Man either, but I think that they would like you to remember it as the one where the cat spit up the Tesseract. Well, how will you remember it with red arrows or green arrows? Jacob Stewart. How marvelous is Captain Marvel? Jacob. And this is like all the Marvel films. It has its moments that are a little bit funny, a little bit exhilarating. I found this one, though, had very few of them. Like, there's a lot of meandering. It's not really until the end where I feel like this movie really kicks into gear. I go back, you know, talking about the 90s, you brought up Independence Day, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking, you know, I saw whatever Star Trek movies came out in the 90s. I don't remember a whole lot of them, but I felt like this was, yeah, kind of just a mediocre 
90s sci-fi film. Like, you could take all the Marvel stuff out of it and just make it a sci-fi film, and it's not that great. I'm glad they're trying to do, for women, what they did with Black Panther. I don't think they do it very well here. In the end, again, it ends up just being, hey, be human and get up after you fall down, and don't listen to those bad voices in your head. Brie Larson, I have some issues with her casting. She's not able to pull off a lot of the jokes, and it feels like jokes, that's kind of what Marvel works on. They're Even in the more serious ones like Winter Soldier there are those light-hearted moments and when she's trying to tell jokes they're not working for me so when I think about all these Marvel films there's only two that I feel like are bad and that's Thor 2 and Incredible Hulk like those films are bad even the ones I didn't recommend there's something in there but this for me fell right in between Iron Man 3 and Thor and that's a not recommend again it just kind of meanders for most of the running time I don't get a whole lot of character I don't have a whole lot of reason to care the one I care the most about is the fluke in the cat like that's the best character in this film so not recommend Stuart you think Captain Marvel cares she doesn't need your approval Jacob she doesn't need your recommend <laughs> hey I I agree if you want to see this film and like it like it I'm just doing this because this is what we do on now play like what you want to like <laughs> well I'm going to do something that you're not supposed to I'm going to tell her she needs to smile I'm not saying that to the actual character I'm saying it to the movie have a little bit more fun Take a little bit more of a breather. You know, there's a pivotal moment at the end when she's finally become Captain Marvel. Brie Larson is falling to the earth and it's we're watching her as the ground is rushing up and she just decides to sigh and fall into it. And I'm like, yes, stop trying to get all your points in. Stop trying to be all things to all women and everything. Stop trying to be so important and just let the story breathe and it'll flow a lot more, it'll be a lot more fun, and people will like you more and will want to know more about you in future movies. Don't try to get it all in here. I think this movie really had a struggle in trying to condense everything that it wanted to do about a garbled backstory for a character that most people don't even know. You get what you get. I mean, I couldn't figure out, part of my curiosity going back, because I've become familiar with the Marvel storyline that this feels not as exciting as previous installments, or is it because the craft is not as good? I think it's a little bit of both. This is what, number 21? Yep. We're really know this stuff now. And so there's very little about it that feels novel and fresh. And while you're going to see action scenes that are fun and you're going to see moments that are memorable, it is starting to feel samey. It is starting to feel like, well, I've already done this. Why are we still doing this? And I don't think that by going the indie route and getting these indie people, they got a whole lot out of that investment. I don't see a lot of indie stylization to this. This looks like a formula Marvel movie that just didn't hit the peaks that the best Marvel movies do. Judging it in terms of the origin stories, the high bar is still Iron Man 1, right? I mean, that is still, not only was it the start of the Marvel Universe, but it was just a really well-made, delightful comeback for Robert Downey Jr., and nothing that's followed, any origin story, including Black Panther. I feel like all of them have struggled to be as charming and to sell themselves. It usually takes sequels or team-ups for me to really like the characters fully. And so I'm going to give Captain Marvel Brie Larson that much. I kind of like her. I see elements that I like, but this movie's such an enigma, I'm not totally sold. I'm going to say Mile Green Arrow for Captain Marvel, but I feel like I'll probably like her a whole lot better in just a few weeks when we get to Endgame. I agree with a lot of that. I mean, I feel that Marvel, looking at Phase 4, 
looking at the end of contracts, who's going to leave after Endgame? And the big rumors are around Captain America and Iron Man. They're obviously introducing a whole bunch of new characters that they can pin future movies on. And I'm sorry, but seeing Doctor Strange and Ant-Man and Captain Marvel team up does not have the appeal of seeing Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man team up even in 2012. All of the characters, with the exceptions of the Guardians that they've introduced after Phase 1, feel like great side characters. They feel like Falcon. They feel like Bucky. I like the characters in a group, but do I need to see them in their solo adventures? Not so much. But I saw this film once and I wasn't sure about it. The second time, I can definitely say it improves upon multiple viewings when you're just not left with such a WTF reaction to the highly confusing way the story is told. I do agree. I don't blame Brie. I do think that Feige, who has had great talent in picking people in front and behind the camera, messed up when they went indie. Because you brought people who can't do the action, they had to, I'm sure, hand it off to the stunt directors and things, and it just felt inorganic, and there was nothing here that did make it feel indie. You said Brie is good at inner turmoil. I got none of that here. I should have. Captain Marvel should have inner turmoil. Who am I? It's a really existential conflict. I didn't get it. But I knew this movie was entertaining. The Flurkin is the only thing I would call capital G great in it, but I like seeing the origin of Sam Jackson. I like seeing Phil Coulson. I like the twists. I mean, this movie had a lot of twists. I feel it had too many at the detriment of the main characters. Like, twist one, you're not a Kree. Twist two, Skrulls are good guys. Twist three, it's not even a cat. But we had so much time spent on plot, we lost a lot on character. But it was clearly a recommend. The question I had then, I ranked it independently, but then I went to Letterboxd where I've ranked all these films. And then I real wanted to know, well, where is it for me? And it turned out that I had four five-star films. Iron Man, Avengers 1, Winter Soldier, Guardians. In second place, three four-and-a-half-star films. Infinity War, Ragnarok, Civil War. Have you said Black Panther yet? No, nope. at four stars okay. comes Black Panther and Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, come on. That's like, I like chocolate and dirt. <laughs> so those are nine of the 21 Marvel movies at four to five stars. And then I have 10 movies, all with three and a half stars. And that's where Captain Marvel is too. She's tied for 10th and she's tied for 18th because Marvel is consistently fine. They're sometimes great. Yeah. They're occasionally not great, like with Thor 2. Yeah. But they're consistently fine. This is right there with Ant-Man. And for me, not you, Stuart, but for me, Doctor Strange and Age of Ultron. And for me, not you, Jacob, but for me, Incredible Hulk. Consistently fine. And sometimes moments of brilliance. And so this is a fine film. It's the epitome of the MCU itself. Recommend, yes, but... This is not a highlight of the MCU. It is the MCU at a baseline. And I don't think anyone thought it would be. I mean, I do think this is a placeholder until we get to April, right? I think they wanted this to be Black Panther for women. Well, I understand that's what they said. But then when they watched the movie, they must have known. <laughs> 
I mean, I seriously, no, I refuse to believe that anyone's going to be really jazzed by the way this movie was cut and edited and put together. It's just not exciting cinema. In no way does this movie excel. It hovers close to the ground and says, I'm average. Cloaking it in some idea that it could say something about women is just dressing it up for more ambition than it has. This is a pretty muddy origin story and a placeholder until we get to the movie everyone really wanted. I do think there will be a celebration because there are themes here, again, with the gaslighting and things that will speak to women more. I'll just say I think Black Panther had stronger women than Captain Marvel did. Like, that was more of a feminist film than this. I agree. Shuri over Captain Marvel any day. Yeah, and I also just think the greatest feminist pieces won't be a superhero movie. Like, this is just a formula comic book movie. Let's not make it too much more than what it is. I felt that way about Black Panther. Yeah, it was pretty good, but, like, let's not give it the best picture Oscar. I mean, it is because it has the ability to reach mass audiences that makes it so important. It's not going to be pitched to say the most about feminism nor the most about american imperialism or anything else it tries to say too much and ends up saying too little and its message is at the expense of its character this should be a movie where i come out of it and i'm introduced to captain marvel and i like captain marvel i'm actually trepidatious about captain marvel because she's too strong but this is the kickoff of a year that's going to have three Marvel Cinematic Universe movies in rapid succession. I mean, we are just a few weeks away from Endgame, and shortly after that, what they're saying is going to be the launch of Phase 4 and beyond, Spider-Man Far From Home. Then we gotta wait till next year, next May, I think. I, I haven't looked at the calendar, but they haven't announced anything. It was supposed to be Guardians 3, but then, you know... Yeah, I, I feel like after Endgame, we'll get a bunch of announcements. They want to hold that close to the chest. I'm going to make only one prediction about Endgame, and that is I think that they are going to pull out all the stops. I think this will be one of the bigger films. It has more ambition, and it has the real potential. I mean, what I liked about this movie coming out at this time was it told you how it started, and now we're going to see, in essence how it ends, how it ends from the way we understand it with the original team. Of course, there's new movies. Just a few months later, Spider-Man's back. We know he didn't blow away an ash, but you know what I'm saying here. This is the end of an era, and I do feel like this movie showing the origin of the era, it's going to make it extra poignant that we see it end. The Russos have never let me down. When I was listing the movies that were above average, everything the Russos have touched was up there. So I'm expecting greatness from Endgame, truthfully. I'm expecting to like it as much as Infinity War, but that is not all that far away. Between then and now, first of all, Let's talk about the main feed. Between then and now, we have a lot of Pokemon. Pokemon! Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's great. Actually, it hasn't been so bad. I thought I would have to lie and make myself into a person that loves Pokemon, but I can regress. I do remember what it is to like a fad in grade school, and it is taking me back to a certain time and place. So it's not all fabrication. I am semi-enjoying it, if not the movies, at least understanding why kids went crazy for it has been interesting to peek behind. And we try to do a lot of that on those shows. Looking at the movies is only a small part of what we're talking about. Yes, and next week is Pokemon 2000. We have three straight weeks of Pokemon animated movies, but you'll also get to hear about Pokemon card games, <laughs> Pokemon video games, mm, board games, the whole gamut. We really did try to see what this phenomenon was powered by, what makes it so appealing. And then we have Captain Marvel in early April. Shazam. <laughs> oh, yes. I was like, we got to go back again. 
<laughs> we will. This is the boy version. And if March is Pokemon all over the feed, April, we're going to theaters every single week. Shazam, followed by Pet Cemetery, coming out a week late because it's coming out the same time as Shazam. And that pushes Hellboy because it came out that weekend, <laughs> so we got to do it the weekend after that. But then we're all caught up to speed and we get to see Endgame. But that's the main feed. On the patron feed, we just released a sci-fi classic, Forbidden Planet, last Friday. That was our March release in April to tie into Shazam. We're going to be reviewing Tom Hanks in Big. And then for our donors, the donation drive was seemingly over. I mean, as far as new shows, but no, this Friday... People who went Lucky Clover level or people who donated me gold in the past for Leprechaun, the Leprechaun returns and we're going to put out that show for St. Patty's Day. Yeah, you know, I don't think they're going to get the same mileage with Jamie Lee Curtis coming back for Halloween. But, you know, Leprechaun <laughs> returning is, I, I guess it's something to somebody. And all right, let's go back to the well. But Jamie Lee Curtis didn't return in this case. They couldn't get Jennifer Aniston back. They couldn't even get Warwick Davis back. But they got Mark Holton back. Yeah, what is returning? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> Mark Holton. <laughs> None of the creative forces behind it. But at any rate, we're returning is the point. We're going back to that series I said we would never. Never do so long ago and doing a pickup. So hopefully you got, if you did donate a long time ago for it, you're definitely going to get it. And if you want it, all those shows are available and you can become part of that green level. And the donation drive has less than a week left for our winter fall donation drive. We got a new drive. It's got to get out of the way. We got <laughs> spring and summer. Yeah. So starting on the 18th, we will launch our donation drive for summer. It is crazily. We will be doing a Friday show. If you're a donor and a patron, you will be getting two now playings a week from now until September. <laughs> yeah. So starting on March 22nd comes our Man With No Name trilogy, our silver $10 donation with a fistful of dollars, then a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. And then in the dog days of summer, July, two more silver shows, Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America, as we lead up to Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Which is actually the film I'm most excited about this summer. I know Endgame will be cool, but it's a Marvel movie. I know what that is. I don't know what this is, but I'm very excited to see what Quentin Tarantino thinks about 1969 Hollywood. And then for our gold level, we're going back to the 80s. We're going to best Captain Marvel. She only went to 95. We're going to the year she disappeared, 1989. And looking at the summer hits of that year, we got everything here from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids to Do the Right Thing. It's such a weird retrospective. <laughs> That's what I love about it. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids to Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And what's important to stress about all of these is that they were influential. I do think that you, as a fallout of those being so iconic, you will recognize why they're important when you go back and look at each one individually. There's action films, romantic comedies, sci-fi, dramas, social dramas. Yeah, so much to explore. They were all influential in their own way. And I can't wait to tell the story of summer of 1989 with you guys. And then Platinum Level, one of the absolute biggest movies of 1989 was Lethal Weapon 2. So we're going to, for Platinum Donors, do the entire Lethal Weapon quadrilogy, one of which I once claimed was the greatest movie of all time. It was Lethal Weapon 4, right? <laughs> no. And then 
We'll still also have the Men in Black series coming back for Men in Black International. I forget about that. There's so many things coming back this summer, you forget. I've been focused on the fact that Chucky's back. <laughs> He's a little Terminator now. And Tarantino is back. So there's all these different levels. If you didn't donate before, and if you haven't gone to Podbean and you want to get them in a bundle savings, all of these are being made available. So we hope you'll join us this Friday for Leprechaun Returns. Either way, have a safe St. Patrick's Day wherever you may be. And Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. It's less than two months until the, the Avengers, Avengers Assemble! Name a detail so bizarre a scroll could never fabricate it. A toast is cut diagonally, I can't eat it. You didn't need that, did you? No, no I didn't, but I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Avengers Retrospective Series, part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, go to our archives where you can find reviews of other Marvel Comics movie series such as X-Men, The Fantastic Four, Blade, and Punisher, plus DC Comics reviews of Green Lantern, Batman, and Superman. Good luck keeping up. Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, Back to the Future, The Fast and the Furious, Tron, Avatar, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and many more. I'm bringing the party to you. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, The Godfather. Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, and more. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Get yourself something nice for me. I already did. And? Oh, it's very nice. Very tasteful. You can also join the Now Playing patron campaign through our Podbean site. We need heroes. We need heroes. You. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month, plus even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our hosts to review. Find the details on our website. It's a small price to pay for salvation. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Those books are far too advanced for anyone other than the Sorcerer Supreme. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. 
That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. Now Playing's Avengers Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. All right, let's start over. You can edit it. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Are you making your voice deeper? No. You <gasps> he are. just did it again. You're imitating the godman. This is my voice. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey, fellas. Hey, wait, where are you going? Hey, you were supposed to be my lift home. How will I get out of here? Hey, oh, gee, I've got so many more stories to tell. Oh, guys. Oh, gee. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Any last words? Hulk! Smash! Blade was a hit. I love that movie. Terrible. They're talking about an R-rated part four. <laughs> Who is? Wesley. Wesley yeah. Snipes, man. Exactly. He's, he needs some money. He's got to skate uphill again and get some cheddar. I feel bad for him. I would like for him to return. As Blade? No. <laughs>